VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, December the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program as the snow is softly falling here in VOCM Valley. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26. So, pretty significant announcement yesterday, St. John's Sports and Entertainment. The Grand Slam of Curling coming back to the city next November, running from the 26th to December the 1st. 32 of the very best curling teams in the world. We've seen the success at Mary Brown Center when the big curling events are here. And of course, the Grand Slam was indeed in the province in 2019. That was hosted up in CBS. So, 16 of the best men's team, 16 of the best women's team, and absolutely an economic shot in the arm coming our way as well. So, we remember back to 2017 when Team Guju won the Briar mile one. I've never heard it louder in that barn. It was absolutely explosive. Jennifer Jones and her Manitoba rink, they won the Scotties down at mile one center. Now, of course, Mary Brown Center. Some while back, so exciting time for curling fans in particular. It's not everyone's bag, but it'll be a great event, and certainly the uh, money that comes to town with it, also significant. Anyway, you want to take it on? Let's do it. Oh, uh, what have I got here? Let's check it down the Para Cup, uh, Para Hockey being played in New Brunswick. Yesterday, we just can't seem to get anywhere with the United States. They popped us again yesterday, 5-0. So Liam Hickey and Team Canada at uh, two wins, one loss now, of course, at the hands of the Americans. And for Blue Jays fans, boy, it looks like the Toronto Blue Jays are absolutely in the running to sign the biggest free agent of the winter season. That, of course, is Los Angeles Angels designated hitter, pitcher, extraordinaire, Shohei Otani. It's going to come with a significant price tag, and he's a once-in-a-lifetime player. So for the Jays fans, like as I'm one, I'm certainly holding out that they may indeed legitimately be in the mix, and it looks like they are. Also, the Angels are trying to secure him, the Dodgers, the Cubs, the Giants, but come on, Jays, sign Otani, will you please? Talk about money that athletes make. It's looking like Otani's deal will be somewhere around 10 years, maybe 12 years, upwards of $600 million. And, of course, the Blue Jays, big TV ratings. And, of course, the folks that own the TV uh, ratings, and they also own the team. So, Rogers, get off your wallet. Sign Otani. And talk about a double threat. One of the very best athletes of a generation was awarded the Heisman Trophy on this date in 1985. Of course, that was Bo Jackson, running back with Auburn. All-star baseball player, Hall of Fame football player, one of the best of all time. All right, so I'm not really sure what went down at St. John's International Airport this morning, but there was what they're calling a suspicious package found. Consequently, everyone was turned away from the terminals this morning. I guess there's been found to be no real danger because the airport reopened about an hour after the package was found, but that's an interesting one. And... I'm continuing to get a fair bit of feedback, and it's a mixed bag. Some people really quite pleased and excited to know that we're going to have a thrice-weekly direct flight from St. John's International Airport to London's Gatwick. Of course, WestJet coming back to town. Then the other side of that coin is people really quite displeased with some of the needs out there and to know that there is going to be absolutely cash on the barrelhead, support for WestJet to bring that direct route back to the city of St. John's. So... We know that the government had about $3.75 million set aside for all of the airport authorities in the province, including St. John's. No money has uh, changed hands yet between the airport authority and WestJet. It all depends on the popularity of the route. So I get, continue to get a lot of trickle-in emails on that issue, and it's pretty much a 50-50 thumbs up, thumbs down. 
Also, still trying to get a status report about progress being made out in Stephenville. It seems to be very little to no progress, realistically speaking, pardon me. So people point to the runway upgrades. Pretty sure that $3 million is from the federal government. So anyway, you want to try to get more updates, we will absolutely try to do exactly that. Okay, and tra- talk about travel notes. A couple of space notes. On this date, 1972, Apollo 17, the first Apollo moon mission was launched. And, of course, the astronauts aboard captured one of the most famous and iconic photographs of all time, referred to as the Blue Marble. Okay. I heard Brian talk about this, and it's the forecast of price of groceries. It's the 14th version of this food report. It's a combination of work being done by Dalhousie University, University of Guelph, University of British Columbia, and the University of Saskatchewan. In their 13th version, forecasting grocery prices for 2023, they were pretty much bang on. Okay, so they're saying that the prices will indeed continue to increase in the grocery stores, albeit at a more modest level when compared to the last couple of years. So they're talking about the fact that a family's overall grocery bill is set to increase by some $700 next year. So how they do these particular measures? Let's see here. They talk about a healthy grocery basket would be for a family of four. That family of four would be comprised of an adult man and woman, a teenage boy, and a preteen girl. So the families are looking to spend upwards of th- over $1,000 this year, bringing the annual family total to $16,288. So now we're talking about another increase coming again next year. Now, they were off a little bit when it comes to those family of four averages because you and I, we've all, very, we've all made very similar decisions when shopping, looking for some some less pricey alternatives. So when they forecast what the healthy basket looks like, you know, when's the last time you bought a steak? I mean, you walk through the meat counter and it's like, oh my God. And then people send in pictures of a grocery store just a couple of weeks ago, a package of four chicken breasts for $27. So people are making different choices. You know, maybe it's not a steak on a Saturday night, it's mung beans. So the forecast of price to set to increase again next year. Ay, 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 ay. But price of fuel is down, a little bit of a break, and I will say it is a little bit of a break. Price of gasoline down from 3.3 cents, diesel down about 6 cents, furnace oil down about 9.11 cents, which is welcomed, stove oil down by 5.5 cents, propane, no change therein. Okay, so yesterday we talked about the uh, announcement coming regarding the potential for offshore wind. All right. So, again, this only comes in the form of a memorandum of understanding. You know, when we talk about potential for offshore and some of the proposals onshore, it really is a concern of many that these projects are basically for export power. And yes, revenue is absolutely required in this province to diversify our economic portfolio. I totally get it. But we don't really have enough information to know whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing. You know, the impact on the wild fishery. I think we have a representative from the FFAW, Katie Power, going to join us this morning. She's been uh, attended some of these consultations, both online and in person. Not a whole lot of information to share. So, yes, when we talk about our domestic power needs, I know there's some consideration uh, ongoing at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro now about meeting the forecasted demand in the future. But a lot of these projects, and even when they talk about the economics of it and the potential for an economic boom for this province, they talk about onshore. They estimate 35 to 40 years of work, estimated $206.2 billion in GDP, bringing in an additional $11.7 billion in revenue, $60 billion in total capital spent, 12,000 jobs. All sounds great. But some of the concerns people have have not been fully addressed or answered or allayed at this point and if you want to bring it forward let's go pertaining to offshore wind 
You know, it's always kind of funny when we refer to the great resource we have with wind. Okay, and it's windy around here. We all get it. Talk about endless possibilities for a greener economy because nothing's purely green or clean in this world. There's cleaner. So there's a couple of uh, hurdles that yet to be cleared here. There's going to need to be, for the province to be the primary benefactor and the regulator, there's a piece of federal legislation that has to go through the parliament to enable the offshore boards to regulate renewable energy, period. And it's called BC49. It's not, it hasn't been passed yet. And why? Because it's being filibustered. So this is one of the examples of political theater kind of run amok. Regardless of what you think of one party or another, when there's a potential for economic upside, and this does indeed potentially present exactly that, and yes, we should uh, address the fishery concerns and other environmental impacts. We don't even know about the size, the scope, the scale, the numbers, the where for any offshore wind proposals. But the whole concept of the filibuster, Look, it's important, it's a critically important role that opposition parties play, whether it be provincially and or, of course, on the federal scene. And I don't know if it's the presence of cameras, and we're not talking about censorship. Just because there's a uh, camera might be removed from the legislature doesn't have anything to do with censorship. I don't know why people are always hyperventilating, hyperventilating about that kind of stuff. There's a daily transcript called Hansard, released every single day, verbatim what was said in any debate, question period, or otherwise. So now, and not that I care about the members of parliament and their Christmas holidays, but there is going to be some significant political theater on display in the coming days and weeks. The Conservative Party, under the leadership of Mr. Poliev, they're threatening to throw thousands of amendments at the government to try to you know, filibuster just about everything. There won't be any actual business attended to while all this uh, filibustering is ongoing. Now, again, the main concept here is that Mr. Poliev says that unless the federal government axes the tax, backs away from the carbon tax in full, he will proceed with these thousands of amendments. Of course, the government will say that it's reckless or ir- irresponsible, and of course, opposition members and their supporters will say they hate the tax. Okay, supposing you are 100% all in on axing the carbon tax, hate the carbon tax, sick of the liberals. When it comes around and turn about being fair play, if this is going to be the way we conduct business in Parliament, that's not good for any of us. Let's just say the Conservatives win and they're way ahead in the polls and the Liberals try to take on the same tactic at some point in the future. It will be frustrating then, just like it's frustrating now. So I know that uh, the Conservatives hate the carbon tax. They didn't always hate it, but they certainly hated uh, this edition of it. And we never factor in the rebate equation, but do you think that this is how we want Parliament to operate? And again, I don't care about the members of parliament and their Christmas holidays necessarily. Not trying to begrudge some time with their family, but that's not the point. So it's all about the acts and the tax. On that front, again, it doesn't matter if you like it or loathe it. The fact of the matter is the Liberals ran on it. It has the support of every other party in Parliament other than the Conservative Party, and yet we're going to see these theatrics unfold over the next coming days, and it will sideline or hold up some pretty important piece of legislation. And whether it be the enacting all of the measures in the fall economic statement, but specifically when we talk about the potential for the province to be the benefactor and the regulator for offshore wind, Bill C-49 will be caught up in this ongoing stuff. So what do you make of that? Uh, A quick sip of coffee, one second. 
All right. And some of those issues regarding federal oversight, monitoring, approval, they've been sidelined somewhat. You know, the federal government should indeed proceed with caution because the federal overreach has been real. Don't take my word for it. Take the Supreme Court's uh, rulings. You know, whether it be classifying all pollutions as toxic, even though waste management is a provincial authority, the Supreme Court said the feds went too far. And then with some of their environmental measures and rulings, they were determined that that usurped provincial authority. Once again, the court said they went too far. So that's why I think leads to some of that more provincial control in wind. Anyway, uh, let's keep going. A couple quick ones here. So it looks like the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services are going to proceed with the RFPs to build two urgent care clinics in St. John's, East End, West End. Of course, all about trying to ease the capacity issues at emergency rooms. I read a story in Ontario uh, just yesterday, and their Auditor General found that one in every five patients in the emergency room should indeed be in front of their family doctor. It's not an emergency. So we know there's lots of contributing factors. The province has already tried this RFP once, and the bids were too high, so they're going back to the board. I'm not sure what changed in the wording or the operational issues regarding these two urgent care clinics, but they are proceeding with. And this one is coming from some folks in the CBS Hollywood uh, area. There was long a plea for more ambulance service up the southern shore, you know, the center that would have been hub in Fairyland. So there's what they call a rapid response unit. It has been critically, vitally important. So on board, you have a paramedic, all the life-saving equipment required, including cardiac monitoring. It's been responding to calls where ambulances weren't available and or they were already far afield. So this unit hopped in. So there's a very high call volume in the CBS Hollywood area, but with some of the concerns being brought forward by the residents and the political uh, influencer, they've taken it from a very high volume call area and put it out in Fairyland. So we're basically just shifting around the deck chairs. So when these calculations are made, and I'm not going to begrudge anybody in the southern shore access to a rapid response unit, but same thing when we talk about where a school gets built. We've got to make the decisions based on the data. You know, you know the story. A uh, high school will be built in Portugal Cove St. Phillips versus Paradise, which has always been at the top of the needs list. And it's not based on student enrollment. It's based on po- political decision-making. Same with this. You know, if there is one, two, five, or ten rapid response units, shouldn't they be positioned where the highest call volume is? Makes sense to me. And again, this is not about the folks up the southern shore. This is just about how we make these types of decisions. I was going to talk about the snag that's been met with the construction down at the National War Memorial. It has been problematic for business. Of course, a $6 million refurbishment to prepare for the 100th anniversary next July the 1st. But now the snag comes with the creation, the construction of the Tomb of the Unknowns or the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I wasn't expecting a call from Mark Brace here. He's the fellow behind Ocean Floor Granite. He had the contract. They were awarded the contract, somewhere in the neighborhood of $100,000, to use Labrador and Newfoundland uh, granite to create this. Apparently, it should be absolutely beautiful. But even though the government knew exactly what the operations were out at Jumpers Brook, at the quarry that's owned by Ocean Floor Granite, Apparently, they had been, uh, thieves got in and dismantled their attachment to the electrical grid, of course, trying to steal the copper wire. So they were operating with an industrial generator. Apparently, a different department, after the contract was awarded, went out and said, it's inappropriate. Let's see if I can get the exact quote for you, because it's really quite strange that we knew exactly what was going on. We knew exactly what the process was out at this fellow's quarry, and all of a sudden, it gets tipped upside down. Mark Brace, he's the fellow behind Ocean Floor Granite. He'll kick it off right after this. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the owner of Ocean Floor Granite. That's Mark Brace. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Good morning. How you doing, Patty? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? Uh, I've seen better days. Um, dealing with quite the situation here right now, and um, it it, uh, it truly seems like uh, a type of a story that uh, would be unbelievable unless like you actually seen it firsthand. And uh, like we uh, we've had trouble with the government for six years, like just very unsupportive. Uh, I've uh, I've tried getting funding from the government for the past six years to actually do an electrical upgrade to the property, and uh, I was denied of any funding. I was denied the SEA program, uh, a lot of things, right? So like the government was very aware that I did need an electrical upgrade. They were very aware that I was running with a diesel generator at the time of uh, the award of the contract um i even actually asked government if they had any any like generators uh idle just in case we had any issues with the generator we were running because where it was a delicate project i just wanted to make sure i had a backup plan um, the government said that their generators are in high use during the summer times but if something came up just uh, let them know and they'll see what they can do so we started the project, uh, well, we started working on it last Christmas. This is the on side of it. And we worked with the government and the architect company, and uh, we came up with a beautiful design that really captures uh, Newfoundland. And from there, uh, we got awarded the project in June and a progress payment, and I got started. I, uh, I actually went in and lived in on site and out of a camper all summer long with uh, just me and my dog in there because of, uh, I didn't want to risk the chance of vandals coming in and disconnecting anything that I had done. And then in September month, like I thought it was uh, like it was a really big shock, the fact that this inspector just came out of nowhere and there was no notice given, right? Like I wasn't given a notice beforehand that he was stopping in to check out the property. He showed up with an OHS officer, almost like he was on a mission to shut me down. And um, so he did, he shut me down on the generator. And uh, I wasn't at all expecting that because I didn't think the government would award me a project and then shut me down on it, uh, knowing full well the situation. So it uh, it's actually leaving, uh, well, the government is still trying to work with me on the project because I'm the only one who can supply the, the rock in that. And, like, the cover's all completed, which I can deliver to them. But at this moment right now, it seems like it's a one-sided relationship. It's like I'm giving to the government everything that I can but they're not doing nothing for me in return, only putting obstacles there for me to have to deal with. And it uh, it really seems like it's a very unfair situation to all the veterans that uh, the soldier represents because you got the remains of this soldier coming back after Christmas. And uh, this project could have been completed uh, right now, like uh, October month, we were well on schedule to be finished and completed middle October. And uh, we could still complete it. My generator is still in on site. I can go in, I can fire it up, and within two to three weeks, I can have this project finished. Um, but we're not allowed to do that. The inspector made it very clear that if I was to run the generator, I could end up with tens of thousands in fines, uh, potential jail time, and they would also lock me out of my building. And uh, so I brought all this back to Transportation Works uh, government and that, and I figured, like, they're not going to shut me down without giving me a solution to be able to get power. And, uh, yeah, after talking to the government for the past two months and staying quiet and, uh, like, you know, I, I didn't try to offend them or anything, I, I really wanted to see them work this out for me. 
and work it out for the project in whole. But uh, it just uh, it just seems like in government it's a really big mess, and the left hand don't know what the right hand's doing. Well, obviously not, because if Minister Abbott says you know he was keen to hire a local supplier and he was confident that you could deliver, but then yet we've got a statement from the other department that went out and visited your site. Upgrades to comply with the Canadian Electrical Code were required and must be completed by a certified electrical contractor. A, a building plan design developed and stamped by an engineer or architect was also required and needed to be submitted to the department for review. If that's the case, the big question would be, how did you get the contract in the first place? Well, that's the thing, right? Like, they knew all this information. They knew that all these uh, things had to be completed, right? So um, I, I was very upfront with the government on that I was running a diesel generator. I was very upfront with them on all the break-ins that we had in the past and everything. Um, so, like, they, they were all fully aware of it. So I thought that, like, you know, if they're going to award me this project, then everything must be okay with the generator. Um, but then from a different department, it turned out to be a completely different story. Help me understand the mineral rights. So Jumpers Brook, where your quarry is, and I don't know what your relationship to get the Labrador component that re you were going to use in the tomb, but what's the situation with your mineral rights at Jumpers Brook? Is it yours and yours alone? Uh, yeah, well, I do have mineral rights there to one of the quarries. There's two other quarries there I'm working on uh, taking over the mineral rights, but I own all land to the quarries. So it's not like anybody else can go in on those quarries and do anything. It's only me who can operate the quarries. And the Labrador rate, I'm the only one who in the entire world that has Labrador rate from Labrador. So, like, when the government looks at this project and they want black granite for the base and they want Labrador rate for the cover, well, when you look to North America, I'm the only one with black granite and I'm the only one with Labrador rate. So it's a, it's, a, it's a situation there that realistically, I'm the only one who can, uh, can complete this project. Um, I've actually spoken to other companies uh, around because I am tied in with other companies and that. And uh, even the largest natural stone company in the world, I was speaking with them on being able to finish processing our rock. And uh, right now, they're about a year behind schedule. So, like, if they if the government went to this company and tried to place this order, they would be at least a year and a half before they ended up with the project. Okay. So, just for clarification, there's nowhere else in the province or nowhere else in the world where there's this black granite, this black gabbro? Nowhere, no. Like, you can get different grades of it at India and China, but the, the rock that's coming from India and China is dyed to be a black. It's not a true black. And we've ran into issues before where, like, you get clients bring headstones to you. They want resurface because there's an engraving mistake, and we, we can't resurface them because as soon as we uh, take the polish off the surface and we go to rebuff it, uh, you take all the dye at the rock and it becomes a light gray. And, like, you'll notice that, like, in North America right now, uh, if you buy a monument, if you buy anything like that there, it comes from India or China. There's roughly $13 billion spent importing black granite, fake black granite from India and China a year in North America. Interesting stuff. So how far along is the project? You know, talk about percentage of completion. I would say we're 70% complete because, like, uh, the hard part is done, Patty. Like, uh, the part where, like, you got to sample the blocks, 
So, like, in order to sample a block of granite, because this base is it's very large in size, right, and it ta- not every block you're going to find in the quarry is going to be suitable because you could have a hairline uh, fracture on one corner of the block that, like, you can get monuments out of it, but one solid block, it would have a defect. So we tested about five different blocks, and uh, that was moving on, moving 20-ton blocks of granite inside of the plant, and we would cut a slab off each side of that block. And when we got that slab cut off, we would take that slab and we would polish it and polish both sides, like a slab from each side, and that would determine the quality of the block. That slab then that we had polished, we then cut up and uh, had them being prepared for samples for the government for their sample engraving. So there was, uh, there was a lot of work just to, just to determine the block that uh, needed to be cut for it. And then, like, while you're processing the block and getting your samples out of it, you're also semi-processing the base of the tomb at the same time. So uh, then when you come to the final stages of processing, like right now, we're, we're basically at the final stage of the processing. The cover's completed. The, the planter wall is uh, about 60% completed. It's only the top uh, part of the planter wall that needs to be completed uh, where it's cut on an angle and there's a polish to it. Um, there's also, with the tomb, there's some polishing that got to be finished. Uh, the inside of the tomb got to be finished being cut out. And it's it's all stuff that can't be done anywhere else in Atlantic Canada. I'm the only one ha- who has equipment and capable of doing it. And, like, for anybody else to say, well, just buy a polisher or stick it in town or something, it's not that easy because to go buy a new polisher, you're looking at about a million dollars plus the price of setting it all up. So it's like the equipment I got is very, very precise equipment for, for this type of uh, work. It's really quite strange. You know, if the uh, government department at the beginning said, okay, this is a, a reasonable operation with the right price point, and they've got the materials we're looking for and the expertise, and all they already knew that you were operating with an industrial generator, then all of a sudden, 70% complete and now shut down. Uh, Mark, it's a yeah. shame that it happened to you. Anything else quickly before we say goodbye? Well, yeah, it, uh, this caused me significant trouble because they didn't just shut me down on the tomb. But other orders that I had, like I'm, I've started taking on clients across Canada and I got monument companies right across uh, was starting to place orders. So I was in the process of filling one of those orders for Calgary when I got shut down and it actually left uh, uh, the Calgary company with not being able to deliver the headstones for October month before the winter came. And um, it uh, caused a little bit of an issue, but we done all refunds uh, for the time being just because of uh, the situation. We don't know when it could be resolved. Okay, very quickly, because I do have to get to the break. So they talk about upgrades comply with the Canadian Electrical Code. What is the precise concern with the generator? Is it emissions or reliability, or what specifically makes that a problem? The thing that makes it a problem is that there's no engineer drawing on it. Like, everything I got hooked up is hooked up 100% correct. And uh, But the problem is, is I don't have a piece of paper from an engineer telling them that they're, like, they can look at it and tell that it's hooked up properly. But unless I go to an engineer and I pay a lot of money, and then, like, say, if you bring in an engineer now, everything got to come to current code. Like, so what code was 20 years ago is not the same today. So once you bring that engineer in now, uh, what worked back then don't work today. So every, like, the complete building got to be completely stripped and completely rewired as a new facility. Uh, Mark, I appreciate your time this morning. I wish it was on uh, better circumstances. 
Yes, hopefully next time it will be. <laughs> Thanks for this. Stay in touch. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Mark Grace. He's the owner of Ocean Floor Granite. They knew exactly what the operation looked like, gave them the contract. X number of months down the road, take the contract away. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to be saying good morning to one of the organizations and the representatives concerned with the possibility of offshore wind off the shores of the island. That's Katie Powell. She's the, in, in, pardon me, the Energy Industry Liaison for the Fish, Food, and Allied Workers Union Unifor. She's up next. Don't go away. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the Energy Industry Liaison for the FFAW. That's Katie Power. Good morning, Katie. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks. So you've attended some of the virtual and in-person consultations held by the Regional Assessment of Offshore Wind Development. What basically have you been hearing? Um, it's been sort of, it, it's interesting that the, this announcement came and it's kind of not happening in parallel with these meetings, um, just to get started with that. At the regional assessments for offshore wind meetings, of course, I'm on the fisheries side, so everything I'm, I'm going to be saying is going to be coming from a fisheries lens, but it, it's a very strong opposition to any sort of offshore wind development within fishing areas. So it's not to say we're against the industry progressing, but we are certainly against the the areas that would overlap and displace the fishery. There's there's two main concerns. Of course, it's the displacement of the fishery, and then we've got the destruction of fish habitat that you know you kind of think would be inevitable with that kind of development. What do we know about the interaction between the wild fishery and wind farms? Is it about uh, some of the electromagnetic fields that would change some of the navigation tools of various species? Is it about increased vessel traffic? Is it about gear getting snagged in cables? Like, What specifically makes it a, big, a bad thing potentially for the fishery? Of course, it's, it's all those things, um, but I guess the main sort of driver for the concern is the unknown. We don't know. You look at other jurisdictions, and, you know, they are, of course, ahead of where we are, certainly, but there is the same sort of apprehension and um, ambiguity and, and just unknown long-term effects during the construction of these, these structures. We are going to be displaced. We don't know whether there, you know, is there compensation for that? How do we coexist? We, we don't know how large the safety zones would be. We don't know how many there would be. There's just so much unknown, and, and that's what makes it challenging to sort of articulate just how devastating the consequences and the impacts would be for us. Uh, one of the paragraphs in the news story I read, they talk about the survey questions being asked of you and other groups, talking about where you fish, when you fish, how much you fish, and there's a quoted word here that says, what areas you'd be willing to sacrifice for offshore wind? Was that word actually present in the survey? No, and I'm not sure. I don't know if that was sort of portrayed accurately in terms of it wasn't necessarily a survey. So so what actually ended up happening was we walked into these in-person engagement sessions with the Regional Assessment Committee, and there were um, paper maps on the tables. And what... Um, originally, I guess they, they've reshaped their um, data collection process since then. Um, but what they actually expected of us at that time, or not of us, of harvesters, uh, was for um, uh, harvesters to physically draw on the map where you fish, what species, uh, when, and these sorts of things. And I think for us, that sort of reinforced the idea that there's a there's 
a disconnect between the understanding of just how the, the fishery works. You know, there are different species fish that at different times, at different water depths. You know, the ocean is dynamic. Species are on the move. It's, it's, it's not really fair to say, um, I fish here so you can put uh, a wind farm here because, of course, everything is moving all the time, and, and fishing areas are... The NAFO fishing areas are, are so large as they are because the entire space is fished by by different harvesters at different times. Have we looked at different jurisdictions? Let's just say the wind farms off the Shetland Islands, Scotland, and the impact that it's had on the Scottish fishery. Whether it be a specific species or economic losses or whatever the case may be, do we have case studies to point to? Not, not as many as we'd like. And, of course, when we sort of bring these... Of course, the Regional Assessment Committee has, has assured us that they are looking at the research that's out there. Um, what's to be noted with that is this Regional Assessment Committee is going to make recommendations that are not binding. At the end of the day, the Regional Assessment Committee can say, we recommend you do this, you don't do this, but the government can just say whatever and, and not even pay any heed to that. It's interesting stuff, and as you say, it's difficult to articulate a specific concern without specific, uh, specific details to even talk about where, scope, size, scale. So I really don't know where we go from here, but I guess we're a long way from this even being uh, allowed by federal legislation, which is going to be snarled up into the parliament for a while. I guess then we'll get down to the brass tacks where we actually have a proponent come forward and say, here's what we're planning, because at that point, then you can put for, uh, forward a very clear and concise case for why it's a bad idea. So. Until we get to that stage, I guess we're at a bit of a standstill. Is that a fair assessment? Right. I, I would I would, I'd say that is definitely fair to say. Um, just something to sort of add to that is, you know, something that doesn't sit super well with me is when you read the sort of verbiage in the announcements yesterday is that they're hoping to expedite the process and sort of speed things up. And, and that is, of course, concerning because does that mean you're going to do that at the expense of the required consultations? And, you know, it's, it's not uh, – it's easy to sort of draw the – I don't know if you've seen the list of the bays that have been included in this provincial jurisdiction, but you can't help but wonder why some bays are listed, some aren't, and then you, and then you look at the sort of land-based provincial projects that are happening and where this might, you know, spill into um, the bays. Um, just from my perspective, you look at – first thing that stood out to me was St. George's Bay and Port-a-Port Bay. So are you saying that you think there's a direct connection with some of the onshore proposals versus some of the potential offshores? I'm saying it's certainly a possibility that the there's some sort of inkling within this rapid um, pursuance of the bays within provincial jurisdiction and pre-existing provincial projects that are happening on, on land, definitely. How many bays were identified? Did I read 16? I can't 16 find it. 16 bays, yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else you'd like to add this morning, Katie? Um, I would like to say that, you know, when you do look at other jurisdictions, say particularly, you know, in, in, the, in the U.S., you know, our closest sort of neighbors in this development, we've seen in consultations um, in Maine that, you know, lobster harvesters were able to get their sort of areas carved out of the offshore ground. So that's a sort of successful means of these fisheries engagements, this fisheries consultation. And I know I read a statement yesterday that um, from Premier Fury, and he said, you know, we're going to look to Nova Scotia, which is is helpful in some ways, but not in others, because our fishery is quite different from theirs. But there's no 
um, commitment or any sort of plan or structure around how involved FAPW or even harvesters will be in these decisions and the consultation process. And of course, the fishery serves to be one of the most vulnerable and impacted because of this. So I am cautiously optimistic about the uh, consultation plans and how the this will sort of all unfold. And I'm hopeful, I guess, that we will hear from the provincial government soon because, again, as of right now, we have not been engaged in these sort of decisions at all with them. The committee chair, a gentleman named Shane McDonald, talking about concerns regarding marine life, environmental conditions, uh, icebergs, but then he goes on to mention the viewscapes in national parks. If it's a viewscape concern, then that doesn't sound very promising for an offshore wind farm because it's less than pleasing to the eye. Exactly. So you've also got tourism and even recreational boating and fishing activities that could be affected. And just one last thing before I ramble on too much about this, but again, you see, you see in the announcement yesterday that the the memorandum of understanding supposedly builds upon this longstanding commitment and collaboration with the regional assessment for offshore wind development. And yet we hear from Shane, who I have a great relationship with, I spoke with him yesterday, saying, you know, we didn't give any input to them ahead of this decision. So, you know, that is a, a disconnect. And I think that the, the opposition that the provincial government is going to get, particularly from the fishery, but also from others, on developing offshore wind in the bay, I don't think they have a really good understanding of just how strong that opposition is going to be. And we're going to get direct reaction now coming up after this break from the minister responsible, Andrew Parsons. He's the minister, of course, for industry, energy, and technology. It's just coincidental that <laughs> you guys are coming back to back. I really appreciate the time this morning, Katie. Thank Thanks. you. Anytime. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Katie Powers. She's the energy liaison for with the FFAW. Okay, and look, I guess a lot of it will boil down to where, you know, and until we know these things, it's really hard to say it's a good thing, it's a bad thing, we should reject it, we should embrace it. So it's where, size, scope. And then I would add to it, you know, some of the people who have been kicking the tires of this industry that have maybe approached Hydro and or the minister himself, you know, where is the market as well? Because we're really not in close proximity to thirsty markets. If we're talking about our mainland partners via the maritime link in Nova Scotia, well... Do they have a thirst for that type of power? How easy and expensive is it to get it into bigger parts of central Canada and the northeastern United States? I'm not sure if anybody really has answers to that, but we'll ask that of the minister right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Burgio Lapoile. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology. That's Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? I'm not going to lie. I, I I might sound a little rough this morning. Uh, between traveling and kids bringing stuff home from school, I'm uh, feeling a little worse for wear. Yeah, I live with the teachers. They're like a petri dish, you know, down at Katie, Katie Six Schools. Okay, so you heard Katie Power. Yeah, you heard Katie Power, the in- energy liaison with the FFAW, concerns that the wild fishery would have with offshore wind. Your thoughts to what you heard? Look, totally get what uh, they're saying. I just think that everybody needs to take a little step back here and uh, take a breath and realize that this was just the first step yesterday in recognizing what is the jurisdiction uh, of our offshore as it relates to renewables. So it's not a case of, you know, well, well, how's the effect going to be? We haven't even moved forward in that regard yet. So yesterday, just so people are listening, what happened yesterday was we signed the MOU with the feds 
basically knowing where we can administer uh, offshore renewable energy, primarily wind, obviously, in terms of the, the inland bays. Up till this point, there was no actual, I guess, real understanding, you know, is it fed jurisdiction, is it provincial, is it shared? So similar to our offshore uh, oil uh, with under the Atlantic Accord, where we know how it's regulated, this is a step forward in terms of the regulation. And this allows us now, and it allows companies that may be interested to know what is under provincial jurisdiction and what will be under joint provincial federal jurisdiction, uh, and that will have an effect on them. But we have we still have a ton of work left to do to figure these things out including what's the process going to be what is the regulation going to be what is the land tenure uh, sort of premise going to be so there's lots of work left to be done lots of consultation left to be done but this was a big win for us yesterday to have these different bays on opportunities this is a big step forward so is this any different than the way that the CNLOPB operates you know because let's look at an example like Vader Nord it required the federal environment minister to release it before it got a green light. So is that what's going to happen with offshore wind? Or because it talks here about the problems being the primary benefactor and the regulator. So is it a sole jurisdiction or what's so it going to share? Basically, the areas under the MOU will be within provincial jurisdiction and regulation. So these will be similar to on land when it comes to the environmental side of things, when it comes to royalties, administration, you name it. Anything outside of that, and I guess it also deals with Bill C-49, anything outside of that will be under federal and provincial joint jurisdiction. I know it's early stages here, but is there thought that we will be a proponent, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro and or the your ministerial portfolio? Because, you know, when we talk about our domestic needs and Hydro is evaluating what to do to meet this, the forecasted demand issue, or are all these projects probably going to be simply export power? So right now, this, the, these are the things that need to be figured out. You know, the, there's still a lot of uncertainty when it comes to offshore. Uh, the, and the good news here for everybody, so everybody can sort of relax a little bit. Look, there's lots of, uh, I guess, other jurisdictions that are in this space. The U.S. Uh, over in the U.K., when you look over to mainland Europe and, and their offshore, there's lots of places going here. So we have lots of places to look to to figure out how do we want to do this in the best step forward. But at the same time, you look at you know some of the issues that are being presented now when it comes to the cost of doing this. So, look, I haven't had a conversation as to whether we are going to be a proponent in this. We have had over the last number of years, and certainly prior to my time, we've had lots of people looking to us because of the resource that we have saying, look, this is something we're very interested in. Now we have another part of the certainty that's been achieved, still lots left to do. So there's a lot of conversations left that have to happen. Because the whole issue regarding the economics of wind farms is pretty testy. Now there's been, you know, some work uh, based on standardization of components, more competition, technological advancements, but they've seemed to be economically not exactly really viable. Huge government subsidies, and some wind farms have stopped to exist because they were so out of reach financially speaking. So I'd be, you know, kind of hesitant Absolutely. to be embracing wind as a, a government investment in this province, especially when we would never be able to support the need on land for any sort of giant offshore wind farm. It would have to be sold elsewhere. And boy, oh boy, proximity to market seems like to be a big problem. The wind farms elsewhere, it's domestic use. But we don't really yeah, need a so big wind farm. These are the questions that had to be answered. That's one of the reasons we went with onshore first, because of uh, the fact that it was it is more economically feasible because uh, we knew where the offtake was going to be and because it was solely within our jurisdiction. But yes, 
that's the issue, not just with this renewable power, but a lot of renewables. It comes down and it requires subsidization. The cost of going green requires people are going to have to pay for it. And that's what presents a lot of these arguments that are out there when people say, oh, we should be completely off diesel. Well, if you want to do that, you're going to have to pay. And look, we still have to have conversations with our current offshore operators because, you know, the ability to have offshore wind may be something that they tie into as well when it comes to their current operation. But I think people need to, to recognize, look, this is, you know, it's fairly new to us. There are, when you're talking about any kind of commodity, including renewables, energy, you're going to ha- you're going to have ups and downs. And there's a lot of questions and there's, there's a lot of cost. Uh, and again, we're seeing that, especially when it comes to the, uh, to the states, what they've been doing in the offshore there, they have faced these issues. But the big thing about yesterday that I think we need to celebrate is that we now know which of these bays, which, look, there is a lot of interest in some of these bays. We now know which ones are under our control. So as people come in and want to talk to us, and we're never going to turn anybody away when they're expressing an interest in investing here. But that doesn't mean that we're not cognizant of cost issues and what the impacts are on the environment. And we have to have a lot of these conversations. They are yet to come. Let's get to onshore again here for a second. So we talk about the fact that any link with our own electricity grid will have to be borne by the proponent. In this case, most of the conversations about World Energy GH2. But also when it comes to end-of-life remediation and all the liabilities associated with it. You've told me in the past, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, that they will be fully on the hook for it, right? Absolutely. That hasn't changed. We're not going to put taxpayers on the hook for their decommissioning costs. So when does the money coming for the decommissioning cost, when does it go in government's coffers? Or are we just going to hold them to take them to task at the end of life because that becomes a corporate versus government battle, which is, you know, long, costly and problematic. So how does it work for the cost cover? So, again, one thing, we're still working at the regulation side of that, but we do have some, I guess, precedent to use here in the fact that when we talk about mining, where we already have these, you know, remediation plans in place, the money is put basically in trust or in a bond uh, to be held later. Because let's be honest here, if you wait till later, especially if things go sideways, you may be left holding the bag. And the province was many years ago was left holding the bag when it came to the mess that was left from resource operations. So we'll be keeping that in mind when we come to this and work with proponents to make sure that we have enough security there and we can figure out what these costs are going to be and we'll we'll basically have that conversation. But again, we've seen this before. I don't I don't think it's hugely complicated, but you know, we'll work with everybody because we we have um responsibilities here to people. We have responsibilities to the environment. Uh, but we need to work with the company to make sure how can we make it so that it works best for everybody. When it comes to, of course, there's 40% of uh, tax credit coming from the federal government yet to be finalized, but they've said quite clearly, world energy, that has to happen before they make a final investment decision. How is this going to work for eventual approvals, which I think is probably going to happen. I don't have a crystal ball, but it really feels that way because there's huge questions about the green hydrogen market. Of course, moving from gray to green is beneficial when we talk about emissions, what have you. But with the emissions from transport to, let's say, Germany and energy loss and price point, because they're even talking, they set aside over $1 billion in Germany to subsidize green hydrogen and price point for their consumers, for their residents. So how do we factor that into you know, an industry at its infancy with a still murky economic or financial model here. Does that play a role in the, in the eventual approvals? 
Well, no. So part of the thing that people need to realize here, and one of the things, because, you know, what, one of the things that really has ticked me off through this is people saying, oh, compare this to muskrat falls. There's a pretty big friggin' difference when muskrat was subsidized by taxpayers. We don't have any subsidization here. What we've done is put that risk on the proponent. They know that. Uh, and our goal is to have royalties once they start hitting profitability. So, yes, we do have our eyes on that. What is this going to look like when the fact is that the commodity price is going to go up, it is going to go down, it depends on the markets, and that's something that these proponents all need to be aware of. So we keep it in mind in the sense that, look, we want them to be successful. And this also jives with, look, I was just in Ottawa meeting with ministers, and doesn't matter whether it's the energy minister, you name it, every one of them, when they're around that table, I'm saying, this fits into what you guys are trying to do. We need this, this investment. We need these tax credits, and you need to move forward on that. And we've been communicating that loud and clear on behalf of the proponents. And, and I have no doubt that they're going to get there. It's just about the, the, the timing of it, the method of it, the, you know, the mechanics of it. So we'll get there. Uh, but look, of course, when you're moving into something like this and we're talking about even the new tech in terms of when you convert it into ammonia and then the energy lost there in shipping, and now they're talking about is there a way to actually carry it across uh, without the conversion. There's going to be lots of changes to this. Nobody has a crystal ball. But I do like, and we've had this backed up, I do like the framework that we set up here uh, because we're not bearing this risk. Yeah, I mean, some obviously the risk is on Mr. Risley and his group, but there's still some huge questions out there about the industry. And for f- folks who are the cheerleaders of it, look, we're just asking questions, all right, before you send me a bunch of emails. And on top of that, it's not me saying that there's some murky issues concerning the end price point of green hydrogen. It's the country of Germany itself. They have a $1.2 billion fund for exactly that, to subsidize the yep. price. So it's not me saying that, oh, my God, this is a flawed business model. The Germans themselves who signed on to the MOU, they've said exactly that. So we'll see. A couple of things there. I mean, look, I wasn't really around or paying attention back when we were dealing with offshore oil for the first time. But I'm sure that that went through the same questions. You know, is this going to be worth it? Should we be investing in things like Hibernia? So I get it. This is new. There's going to be lots of questions. But there is no doubt that there's going to be a demand. But that doesn't mean that, you know, what does that demand equal in terms of the price point and everything else? But look, there's a serious energy crunch over there. And, you know, they're coming to us for for obvious reasons here. So we want to be prepared to deliver. But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be questions and queries along the way. A quick one before we get to the news. What's the scope of the RFP regarding expanding cellular service? Uh, Sorry, what's the scope? Yeah. So what exactly are we looking for here? Okay, so this is similar. We've done two of these before where basically we look to the communities and say, who is interested in sort of getting better coverage and how that looks? We've had a bunch of communities, I think 31 uh, expressions of interest, 73 different communities. Some of them have partnered together to say, yes, we are interested in this. Now, basically, what we do is we take that to different providers and say, look, what are the solutions that are there and are you interested? Because everyone is different based on geography, topography, what is the actual technical solution to that? And after that, we hopefully find a right fit for everybody. The providers themselves uh, have generally been on the hook for about 50%. The provincial take of this has been somewhere in the range of 25 to 40%. And the communities have some skin in the game as well, somewhere in the range of 10, sometimes more than that. This is about just working towards finding that fit. These are not easy solutions. When you get to this point now, 
is not always a very easy or cheap fix to provide coverage in certain communities. And that's why we're moving forward uh, with trying to help bear that cost. So there's still some work left to be done. Now we're waiting for the providers to come back to us. Because, of course, it's the number of customers that will drive decision-making for infrastructure inside the world of the big telecoms. Uh, anything else yep. quickly before we say goodbye? Oh, any progress well, updates or anything that you can tell us about? And you know me, I want to talk critical minerals for an hour, but we don't have time this morning. Uh, any communication ongoing with Equinor? Uh, yeah, actually, I'm scheduled to talk to Equinor tomorrow. So, look, things remain positive. Uh, you know, they've got time to make some decisions here in terms of reducing their cost, uh, but... I think both sides still remain very optimistic. The last point, though, I want to put forward to the the previous caller uh, from the FFAW talking about the engagement. We have not had any reach out from the FFAW. And in fact, there was some conversation there with you about, you know, how does the onshore tie into the offshore, which is pure speculation. So what I would say is my number is 729-2920. My email is andrewparsons.gov.nl.ca pretty easy to get a hold of we need and will be working with we need to work with the ffaw we are going to work with them and i think there's a way for everybody to have success here so i look forward to those conversations i, I appreciate the time thank you Take care. Bye. You Bye-bye. Uh, Andrew Parsons is the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology. Let's take a break for the news. If you want to pick up on anything you've heard so far or change the subject, you can do exactly that right after the newscast. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. Your Merry Christmas station is back. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the executive director of the VOCM Cares. That's Sonia Smith. Good morning, Sonia. You're on the air. Good morning, Penny. How are you? Great today. Thanks. Good, good. Uh, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity, Penny. I wanted to talk about our um, uh, VOCM Cares in the community 50-50, and it's going really well. And uh, December the 16th, is the last day for people to buy tickets so they can buy tickets right up until 11:59 p.m. Uh, but the uh, the prize now the jackpot is almost $22,000 and of course the winner takes half and half uh, will be used for VOCM cares programs. What kind of programs remind the folks what you guys are working on? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, Penny, we do uh, a number of programs throughout the year, including the Coats for Kids that we just finished. Uh, that was uh, uh, all throughout the province. We had uh, coat collections and uh, warm winter clothes, of course. And we also did a Thanksgiving uh, food drive. But one of the main uh, aspects of VOCM Cares is that we support programs and charities within the province. So things like... Um, a seniors uh, program out in Robert's Arm or a program for new parents of children who are born with Down syndrome, uh, the Boys and Girls Clubs, some of the school food programs. We just uh, gave uh, the Healthcare Foundation $5,000 for their Seniors for Santa uh, uh, program. So that means that uh, seniors in Eastern Health uh, will receive a um, Christmas gift because of the support of the OCM Cares Foundation. And I know Agriculture in the Classroom got a little shot in the arm this year, too. That's a great program. 
Yes, it is. The Little Thumbs program is really a wonderful program. So we were able to provide uh, $4,500 for that program. And that, that's thanks, of course, to all the fundraising that we do and the people who support our fundraising, like our 50-50. So what do folks need to, uh, need to do if they want to get in on the action? Because everyone loves a 50-50. Absolutely. That's one thing about us as Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. We love a good 50-50, and this is a wonderful one. So all they need to do is go to vocmcares.com, click on the link, and they can purchase their tickets right online. I appreciate the time. Good luck with this, Sonia. Thanks so much, Patty. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Let's keep rolling here. Say good morning to one of my great friends. Talk about our upcoming show, Song Seekers, following the incredible journey of Elizabeth Bristol-Greenleaf and Grace Yarrow-Mansfield. That's Ruth Lawrence on Line 5. Good morning, Ruth. Oops, clicked the wrong one. Good morning, Ruth. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Always great to talk to you. Always happy to have you on the program. Tell us about Song Seekers. Well, I'm outside the new Majestic uh, across from City Hall here this morning, and we're getting ready to do our final touches on our show. It opens tonight. It only plays till Saturday night with four shows. It's a gorgeous show, Patty, about the two women who came in the 1920s, if you can believe that, traveling around Newfoundland to collect the folk songs, and not just English and, and Scottish and British and uh, Irish folk songs, but also the songs that were being written by the people here. So there's lots of local compositions from that time in this show they were fascinated that people were writing songs here the same as they had been in England 300 years ago and that uh, they collected those too and they were the first people of uh, to do that they, uh, all the other all the other folk collectors that collected uh, only the songs that came here but these two women collected the songs from this place who's involved uh, well I we are very lucky to have Katrina Bromley, of course, uh, from away Broadway star with us. She was a writer and she's a performer in the show. I'm absolutely honored to be on stage with her. And uh, Michelle Rex Bailey from Port Rexton is one of the co-writers. We have the amazing Pamela Morgan of Figgy Duff fame and her own solo career on as our director and musical director and an incredible group of designers who've just created the most amazing set sound projection design that I've it's just simply breathtaking so we've got an incredible crowd with us can you give us uh, an example of the song sheet like what kind of songs are we talking about that were preserved by these two women well uh, so the ones that were local were songs like um my god now i got the whole song list in my head uh were songs like um the uh, the ss essie from uh the gross morn area so that was a story of a shipwreck from uh that area it, absolutely stunning beautiful song another song of a shipwreck common theme was the good ship jubilee which i doubt that hardly anybody knows patty this i felt like when we found this in the book uh it was new, certainly new to me songs like that just absolutely stunning beautiful compositions and and of course i should also say that even though it's only patrina and i on stage we have amazing people like jim payne uh making uh some video appearances so we have a ton of special guests who show up in our show as well how are the ticket sales going really good tonight is we got a great crowd tonight oh, for opening night the other nights are good but we still got room here patty and there's there's we just added a live stream due to popular demand because not everybody can get into st john's to see the show so on saturday night at 8 p.m there will be a live stream of the show from the majestic and for, to see that uh people who are interested would go onto the website 
for the Majestic Majestic Theatre Hill, and they buy a regular ticket for the live stream, and then they'll get the link to watch it, just like just like they were sitting in the theatre here, except they can enjoy it from the comfort of their own home. Theatre goers and the arts community at large, oh, we're so lucky that the Majestic got that type of renovation. Paint a mental picture of what it looks like inside these days. Oh, it's stunning. If you've been in the Majestic, of course, it's not that physically different because it's still a beautiful black box theatre, uh, but it's just a gorgeous renovation. They have beautiful marquee signs outside, uh, a lovely box office, and there's a bar and cafe. The cafe is open on a regular basis, and the bar is open after every show. It is absolutely stunning to be in this location. Uh, the last time I did a show here, I think, was 2008, and the comeback in this week uh, was just such a different experience. It's, it's a beautiful space for those who haven't seen it yet. The marquee sign is absolutely perfect. So great to see that back downtown, Patty. Makes us feel like, you know, we're back in 1950s or something, but, you know, we're completely modernized inside. Well, with a little snow flurry here, that's our, our, our bit of the great white way, I guess, today. I know it is. It's a little Christmassy down here for sure, but just enough to get you into the spirit. Thanks for the call this morning, Ruth. Break a leg. Okay, thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go. That's Ruth Lawrence and team bringing you Song Seekers. Uh, let's take a break. I made mention of a concern that was voiced to me via uh, several emails regarding the rapid response unit that was out in CBS Hollywood area and the high call volume it was experiencing. We'll find out more about what that rapid response unit does and its capabilities, and then also maybe political decisions based on where those units are dispatched. And there's lots of things to talk about in the world of ground ambulance. Rodney Goody is the president of the Paramedic Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. He joined this next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the president of the Paramedic Association of NL. That's Rodney Goody. Good morning, Rodney. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well. Thanks. How about you? No, not too bad. Now, of course, this would have nothing to do with your association, but what can you tell us about the rapid response units? First off, how many of these rapid response units are in the province? Um, actually, as far as I am aware, there actually isn't any uh, rapid response units out there as of uh, at the moment. It was uh, mentioned back in the spring that this was something that they would be looking at for um, down the southern shore area, but it's, uh, to my knowledge, these have not actually been implemented just yet. Yeah, there's uh, being looked at. Okay, because there's uh, I got a variety of emails from people saying that there was a rapid response unit stationed out in the CBS Holyrood area. It's been taken away. They think it's headed to Fairland. Okay, yeah, no, like I said, as far as I'm aware, unless uh, we'll look into it further to see if uh, things have changed uh, without my knowledge, but as far as I'm aware, it hasn't actually been put in uh, place just yet. Uh, Maybe the commitment of where it's going to be placed is what the concern is, but uh, as far as I'm aware, it hasn't actually been placed anywhere. The the actual physical truck has not been put into the service just yet, so. What would this unit uh, look like versus a standard ambulance? Like, I'm not really entirely sure what it is. Yeah, so uh, other provinces, uh, when they talk about a rapid response unit, typically what it is is like an SUV-type unit uh, that's staffed by one paramedic that allows them to get to a call a little bit faster. Uh, You can have them stationed all over the place uh, so they can get to a a scene fast, start the treatment, uh, while uh, a traditional ambulance is still sent uh, to respond as well to transport the patient. So it just allows uh, one individual to get on scene quicker, uh, like I said, to start that treatment. And uh, these uh, typically in other provinces, when they have them set up, they have them stationed all over the place, uh, not necessarily at a base, could be uh, on the side of a road in between two towns so that they're able to respond quickly. Uh, basically, they're already in the truck ready to go instead of, like I said, being at a base. 
And uh, so it allows the, like, the uh, treatment to start right away, even though that vehicle can't transport. It at least allows the, uh, the actual treatment of the patients to start immediately. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the province has hired a consultant to talk about one of the only real piece of news coming out of the most recent budget was to consolidate some 60 ambulance contracts into one authority. That would be the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services. Have you had an opportunity to sit down with this consultant? Uh, now with the consultant, uh, there's actually been three consultants hired uh, total as part of the uh, the budget uh, process. Uh, so the three consultants, one is on fairness, one is on the ambulance serv- ground ambulance service, and the other is on uh, the air ambulance service for the province. Uh, so those three consultants were supposed to have their uh, work completed by this fall, and we are hoping to uh, see the results of this uh, coming out already. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, as with our, everything that uh, seems to happen with our paramedicine world within the government uh, level, uh, we're still waiting on things. So. I'm really hoping for a Christmas miracle here, Patty, that uh, we'll see uh, the results of these uh, consultant work to tell us how this is going to work, how this is going to be implemented, uh, what everything is going to look uh, in order to alleviate the concerns uh, to their our paramedics in the province so that they know what the system is going to look like uh, going forward, as well as to you know inform the public about what the system is going to look like as well. They're, they deserve to know uh, what their ambulance system is going to look like here in the province. Does the association have a thought on what it should look like? Because it's hard to imagine it's going to be anything other than a hub-and-spoke model, right? Very similar to what we have today. So the the questions would be, will it mean fewer or more paramedics, fewer or more ambulances on the road? So do you guys have an idea what you think it should look like, given the fact that you are the paramedics? It's, there's a number of different models that can be looked at. It's all a matter, a matter of how uh, they want to go about it. Uh, for us, it's a matter of uh, involving us in the process to ensure that um, what is being done is the right thing for the patients and for the paramedics from here in our province to ensure that our patients are getting the best care possible at all times. So, you know, for us, we just want to know what model they're basically looking at so that we can give our input to ensure that it's being done properly. When we look at other provinces, when they've gone to a provincial-wide system, um, a lot of the issues uh, seem to stem by stem around um, like how the implementation is being put in place as well as the enforcement or the quality assurance that's put into place afterwards. Uh, if we look at uh, Nova Scotia, they recently did an audit of their EMS system for the whole province. And one of the big factors that came out of the, the review uh, was that the government itself was not doing their due diligence to ensure that MediV was uh, doing what they were supposed to do in their contract. So without somebody watching over, without the proper oversight, uh, that company is able to do whatever they want and get away with it. And so that's where a lot of the problems seem to stem from with the Nova Scotia audit that was completed. So ultimately what we need to do when we set up a provincial-wide system is ensure that the assets are in place to oversee uh, the system that's running to make sure that everything follows the contract that is supposed to be set out in the first place. So is the thought here that there may indeed be a multinational to operate the ambulance service here? Because I thought what they were saying is they would consolidate all the private contracts in under the control and the authority of the health services. That's correct. Uh, My understanding at this moment is that uh, we will be um, all consolidated under the uh, Newfoundland Labrador Health Services. Uh, But what potentially could happen from the sounds of it is there could be a management company brought in just to oversee. So uh, oversee the company, but still all the employees would still be uh, like... um, Newfoundland Labrador Health Services employees kind of thing. So Okay. Uh, you said something along these lines. You know, the lag time here or the delay in getting the result of this consultant's work or these three consultants' work is very similar to how they've been handling paramedicine for a long time in this province. 
you know, we've heard the stories, whether it be when they shut down one operation or another, people have been deemed to be contravening contracts, losing paramedics. What does it meant realistically for your members? Like, are we continuing to lose paramedics or what's the tone or the theme amongst your members that you're hearing? Yeah, most definitely we've been losing paramedics and we've been uh, voicing that concern to government uh, for the last number of years as well. Um, you know, COVID hit, hit us hard as well. We had people leave the profession, leave the province uh, due to the way things were. Um, and then continually uh, with the uncertainty of what is coming uh, to our profession, uh, there's a lot of rumor mills going around so people don't know what it's going to look like, uh, what the system's going to look like, who their employer's going to be or how uh, things are going to play out. And so with all that uncertainty, people would rather just uh, jump ship go to another province or uh, even still uh, stay here in the province but uh, do like a fly in fly out in another province uh, instead of basically sitting around uh, living with that anxiety of what's to come here in our province. I mean we've been I think 13 years now since the first audit was done uh, to look at the system that gave uh, 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 recommendations of how we can improve things and there's been I think six uh, uh, reviews done since that. Uh, with all recommendations uh, not being completely followed through on. And so, you know, we, we sit here, we spend money, the government spends money to do the, these reviews, to do these audits. And, you know, if, if we're not going to follow through with these recommendations, what's the point of, of throwing money away? Uh, so hopefully we can uh, start to see some uh, real change happening here uh, with the recommendations from the Health Accord being followed, as well as now with these auditors or these uh, uh, consultants being brought in, the three consultants being brought in and their work being completed, that hopefully we see this actually being followed through with this time, instead of just another piece of paper sitting on someone's uh, desk and not being followed through. Fair enough. A uh, couple of issues that lead to the red alerts that we see, you know, when people call and there's not an ambulance available. To your understanding, is the reconfiguration of the emergency department at the Health Sciences Centre going to help on that front at all, or is it simply just going to be the same thing, waiting for a nurse or a nurse practitioner or doctor to offload your patient? Yeah, it's definitely still going to be an issue regardless because, uh, you know, even after all the renovations are done, you still need staff that, uh, to work in that emergency department. You still need staff uh, up on the floors. You still need beds in the um, nursing homes uh, to take the patients that are, you know, uh, tying up the system in the hospital. So it's an overall system-wide issue. It's not, you know, a one simple fix that's going to solve everything. Multiple different things need to happen in order to solve this overall issue of, of uh, red alerts and uh, offload delays. And one of the other issues that potentially leads to the red alerts is the non-emergency transfers. I mean, because we use uh, paramedics and an ambulance to do some of these transfers as opposed to how they handle it in other provinces. What, what happens elsewhere? Yeah, so other places, uh, again, like Nova Scotia, if we look at, uh, they have uh, a provincial-wide uh, non-urgent non uh, transport system. So using ambulances or ambulance-style vehicles uh, to do these transfers and not using paramedics to tie up those trucks. So uh, you hire people with uh, some sort of level of uh, first aid and uh, they're able to do these transfers and uh, not provide any sort of emergency care in the back of the ambulance. I really appreciate that, uh, making time for the show, Rodney. Thanks a lot. Anything else before we say goodbye? No, that's it. Hope you have a Merry Christmas, Patty, and uh, all the best. And like I said, I'm hoping for a Christmas miracle here with this uh, latest consultant work being happening now. Yeah, fingers crossed for a soon-to-be-released report. And Merry Christmas to you and yours. Thanks, Rodney. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
All right, you know, there's a lot to what Mr. Goody just had to say. But when we know that there was a variety of recommendations put forward as long ago as 13 years, and yet here we are today where nothing realistically has changed. There's just been an amalgamation of dispatch services, which I guess could be uh, more efficient, but it doesn't change the reality for folks working in either air ambulance or in the ground ambulance services. And as a result, we've heard the stories. We're losing paramedics, and we can't afford to do that. So... There's no real explanation understood about why we haven't impl- implemented the recommendations that are already been put forward to the government, and we don't know why there's been any delay in releasing the three consultants' report. If it was due in the fall, well, here we are in, on the 7th of December. Maybe, just maybe, we can get that out there because it's in all of our collective best interest. If we have an efficient uh, ambulance service with the required number of paramedics to operate it, because the more that we lose, it's going to become extremely difficult to backfill lost positions, add to it, much like every other industry. If there's been continual problems plaguing the industry, like it has in paramedicine in this province, does that make it for an attractive place for future paramedics to want to work or current paramedics to move to this province to uh, to be part of the ambulance service? Probably not. So a lot to consider on that front. Okay, let's see what's happening on Twitter. We're VOSM Open Line. You can follow us there. Email address is openline at VOSM.com. But our favorites when you join us live on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Trailways. That's uh, Rick Nosworthy. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, sir. How about yourself? I'm doing all right, boy. Looking out and enjoying a little bit of early winter. And here we go, snowmobile season just about uh, just about upon us. But there was a news article I read last week about no longer have to wear helmets on Inuit lands. Do you know what went into that? No, I don't, uh, Patty, and it, it frustrates me because you know uh, cultural differences aside, rocks are rocks and stumps are stumps, and uh, I don't get it. Now I know sometimes there was a talk many many years ago that the helmets were not warm, you know, in cold weather, you know, and, you know, these, you know, hats and scarves are are, are warmer. But uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I can tell you that the technology of helmets have certainly changed. And uh, uh, I don't know too much about it, to be honest with you, but uh, like I said, the rocks are rocks and stumps are stumps, and, and technology and helmets certainly changed. And uh, I have never been cold with a helmet on my head as opposed to a hat or a scarf, so... That's all I can know. No, me neither. And with the visor down, it's pretty snug inside a, a, a modern-day snowmobile helmet. Okay, so what does winter prep look like for you and your gang? Um, I, I guess for the winter with, with trailways, we're sort of, you know, I can't say slowing down because we're looking at grants and we're looking at things, you know, on the trail. The big thing that we gotta that we got to address is the alders. There's no question that, you know, we, we have to find a way to be self-sustaining with alders. But this time of year now, with us, it's transition because uh, the Somerville Federation uh, used part of our trailway in, in the winter. So, uh, you know, they're going to be active on it. And, uh, you know, what we ask of everybody is be respectful of what they do because uh, the park, you know, the trailway is a provincial park. 
and that supersedes anything. So you are allowed to ride an ATV 12 months of the year on any part of the trailway. But keep in mind, there are sections of the trailway, and I would say about a third or a little bit, yeah, probably about a third or a bit more, um, it, you know, is groomed on a regular basis. And it'd be very disrespectful for someone to take their ATV or side-by-side and tear off what some volunteer has done. You know, so you, you need to, I guess the big thing is, is respect. You know, you're allowed on it with your ATV, but use your judgments and go when it's hard packed or when it's not groomed. What does the alder removal program or the alder control program look like? Like, how does it work? Who funds it? Who does it? Well, there you go. That that that, that is the million dollar question, and it is a million dollar question. Um, alders used to grow back at a four year rate, at a five year rate. Sorry, now they're growing back at a four year rate. Um, we estimate at roughly the clear about. We got 300 kilometers, give or take, of alders in, in the island. We were estimating that it's going to cost a half a million dollars to remove these alders. And then we look at $120,000 a year to maintain it based on the four-year cycle. So nobody got that type of money. You know, we can go to our funders and everything else, but, you know, no, nobody wants to take that on. So we, we have to find a way to be self-sustaining, and we're working towards that, Um you know, ways to get more of an income. But I guess on the technical part, we're looking at better ways to control alders. And we've worked with the Department of Agriculture now, and we've talked to people. Uh, Jamie Warren, our executive director, has been very busy on this file. And we're trying to find a way to eradicate the alder and come back with something like a larch tree or um, a spray program of, like, say, uh, uh, putting in some sort of seed, you know, uh, I guess grass or something to choke out the otters because the otters are a very necessary part of the environment but they grow at a rate that's incredible and you know as necessary as, as they are the southern trees along the stretch of the trailway we got to find a way to eradicate them. And how does that work? How do you eradicate something like an invasive uh, alder? Well uh, that is the question. Uh, the big thing is we have to tear it up that whatever chance you have, you got to tear it right out of the ground. Um, if you cut it off, it'll grow back faster, and also it's dangerous because if it's cut and it's, you know, you're leaving eight or ten inches of it there, you know that's a spear. You come off a, a pedal bike or an ATV or a snowmobile land on that, you're in trouble. So th- that's the first thing. It has to be taken out. It has to be removed from the area. You can put it in behind the sight line, but it's certainly got to be taken out. Then. Um, there's spray programs. Um, we've looked at that, and spray spray has come a long way. Like, you know, when you think of spray, the joke is always Agent Orange, and you can't do it. But, you know, Hydro and other people and other trail users have used spray. It's not the prettiest-looking thing. You know, you go through there, and you spray it in the spring, and everything got an orange tinge to it. It doesn't look right. And it's not the answer. It, do, it doesn't eradicate them. So, you know, we, we had to find a way to get them to grow slower or to put in something like you know i think right now we're looking at a larch tree there there's programs out there that we can get some of these trees but you know even larch trees they all grow but they're easier to prune back and they grow at a slower rate so the more you get into it there's a science to it that a lot of it is above uh, you know my head and you know there's people at, at departments looking at this to try to find a way because you know, $500,000 and $120,000 a year, 
that's just not sustainable. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning. Rick, thanks a lot. Well, thanks, Patty, and enjoy the rest of the month, and have a great Christmas. The same to you, Rick. Thanks. Okay, buddy. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Rick Nelson, the president of the Newfoundland Trailways, Newfoundland Labrador Trailways, or the Newfoundland Trailway Council, I think is uh, specifically what it's called. The trail itself is almost 900 kilometers, right? And when the, can- uh, the Trans-Canada Trail is eventually completed from coast to coast, it's going to expand some 22,000 kilometers. It'll be the longest continuous trail in the world. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Matthew. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How you doing? Best kind to you. Uh, not bad. Uh, just out driving there for a couple hours, and uh, the roads are ridiculous. And didn't see one snow uh, snowplow or salt truck out there. And we also got people out driving around in race cars without any snow tires on. So I just wanted to give a heads up to everyone: uh, if you don't have snow tires, and maybe it's a good idea to stay home. And I had a behind a guy on Empire Avenue going about 15 kilometers an hour. Couldn't he couldn't even get up the road, right? So, I mean, it's, if you don't have snow tires, you just stay home. And that's what all I wanted to say today. Well, fair enough. I mean, there's plenty of people out there. There might be a delay trying to get your snow tires on. You've been calling different garages. Fair enough. But there's also people out there who are willing to go around on basically what are baloney skin all seasons, and you're going nowhere in a hurry. You're presenting a danger to yourself and everyone else around you. So every time in, in the past when I've said, you know, maybe mandating snow tires is a good idea, and, of course, the pushback is immediate. You know, not everyone's got money to buy uh, two sets of tires, but not everyone's got money to pay they're hiked up insurance premiums because they got in an accident because they're all seasons or useless in the snow and the slush and the ice. I appreciate the sentiment, Matthew. Anything else you'd like to say? Uh, no, that's everything, Patty. Love the show and uh, keep up the great work. Thank Thanks, you. man. Appreciate the time. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Andrew. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, the reason I was calling in, Patty, is that um, as was on your news this morning, there's a critical drug shortage of drugs like Ozempic, uh, Trilicity, Monjaro, and uh, these are coming in short supply and affecting people across Canada. And my concern about this, uh, when I, as a type 2 diabetic, couldn't get Ozempic on, on November 10th, was to start an e-petition, um, and this e-petition is on ourcommons.ca, and it's petition uh, E4697. And what I'm trying to do is get um, Canadians behind me to get the federal and provincial governments regulating these drugs um, because they're critical for some diabetics who can't use substitutes, and they're critical for people with chronic obesity. And on the other extreme, uh, Patty, what you'll find is um, in doing due diligence on this topic, um, there's kind of a leakage, I would call it, of the Canadian drug supply. And so the problem is, first of all, there is very few regulations about these drugs going to other countries. BC is the only province that has put a regulation in place. There's very little regulation of prescriptions being written for off-label usage. And on the other extreme, it's usage such as vanity or cosmetic weight loss. And I would define that as being weight loss without a health benefit. Um, so again, what I'm hoping is to get um, people's attention and, and the fine people of Newfoundland and Labrador to take a look at petition E4697. And again, it's on the website, rcommons.ca. And let's get the government regulating this for people that 
need these drugs critically. I mean, the fact that the semi-glutide Ozempic is so popular in the weight loss world because doctors will justify it by writing a prescription for someone who does not have diabetes. They'll say, well, you know, taking away someone's obesity is also beneficial to their health. I think there's a lot more we have to dig into on that front. So just let me have a clear understanding of exactly what the petition says. Are you talking about how Health Canada approves drugs or also to establish some sort of ethics regime for how drugs are prescribed? It's more in the time of a shortage where there is critical medications like two diabetics. And in fact, I recognize um, obesity also um, because they're both chronic diseases um, that essentially the drugs somehow are either prescribed or through pharmacies put to people that critically need them. There's a subset of those populations where they can't use alternatives. Um, so it's well and fine, you know, for example, people say, well, just put the diabetic on higher doses of insulin. Well, you can't necessarily do that, and there's a problem with doing that. Insulin actually increases the chance of you gaining weight, and increased doses of insulin, for example, can increase your um, cardiovascular risk. And, and so, you know, some people can't use a substitute. And on the weight loss, um, that's fine. And that term gets thrown out very loosely. There's a spectrum of weight loss. So people with a very high BMI suffer from chronic obesity. And yes, absolutely, they should get these medications. But people on the low end of the spectrum who want to lose 5 to 10 pounds to look better, the vanity, the cosmetic, where that weight loss achieves no health benefit, I question that they have access to these medications, again, during a time of shortage and, in fact, a global shortage. I'm happy to see people have access to medications, whether it's for use on-label or off-label, at any time with anybody prescribing it. Again, I think we're talking about the situation now where people that critically need some of these drugs can't get it. That is what this petition is all about. And it's important because, you know, it's all the rage. They even refer to it as the Hollywood jab now because people brag about the fact that they have a prescription for Ozempic, not because of their diabetic, but because they're losing weight. And, you know, some of the weight loss uh, stories out there are real, which makes it an attractive option. And, you know, the pressure that doctors are under, right? People go to their computer, WebMD, they diagnose themselves. They think, that well, this is the drug I need or want. They go to the doctor and there's a big pressure play uh, put to bear. So I saw a story where this one person said they they were on the Ozempic for weight loss, and over the course of three months, lost, lost 15 pounds just from taking the drug. Didn't change their diet, didn't t- change their sedentary lifestyle, simply the drug. So you know full well why that's going to be popular. But your point is well taken here. It's not what it's used for. And if there's a shortage and someone with an actual medical problem that this drug was created for can't get it, that's an issue. Uh, Andrew, appreciate making time for the show. Where can people find the petition? So again, it's on the website, Our Commons. Dot .ca so that's kind of one word and the specific petition is E4697 and I'd like to take the opportunity to thank you for allowing me simply to point this out have people go there read it consider it if they agree sign it and if they agree perhaps engage friends and family um and just to say Um, Hi to my daughter, who's a resident of St. John's, and she's one of the supporters of this. So thank you for this opportunity. My pleasure. Be well, Andrew. Take care. Bye-bye. So it's ourcommons.ca, and you look specifically for E4697. It's a legitimate concern. 
you know, imagine the drug was created for the specifics of treating diabetes. And now folks who absolutely need that drug and do not or cannot use some of the other substitutes out there can't get it because people are losing weight by taking it. Interesting story. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, there's a question that I get probably 10 times a week, and I try to reply to all these emails, and it's about the National Dental Care Program. And it's the same question, and it's a good one, and it's very difficult to get an update from the federal government about the timeliness of the, some of the rollouts. So they were talking about providing children under, under the age of 12, low- and middle-income families by the end of 2022. That happened. 18-year-olds and under, seniors and people with disabilities in 2023. I have not seen any announcement of this rollout for seniors or persons with disabilities, and here we are, the 7th of December. They said in 2023, 2023 is almost behind us. The program will be rolled out in full to all eligible Canadians by 2025. So I don't think they've hit their 23 target, but we'll try to get some information from any of the members of Parliament that maybe your constituency assistant is listening now, if you have some information to share, because I get this question all the time. And when they talk about the folks who are eligible, there's some 9 million-ish uninsured Canadians who have a net family income of less than $90,000, and they're not getting the uh, dental care they need. There's also no co-pays for those with family incomes under $70,000. So we're not all eligible for the program, but as described, under-18s, seniors, people with disabilities by the end of this year, not so sure that that has happened. We'll try to get the information because, I, like I said, I get this question all the time. All right, good news, I guess the potential for good news, that the members, or pardon me, the bargaining groups for the Association of Allied Health Professionals, had, they've picked up their contract talks with the government. They've reached an impasse. The talks broke off. They've been negotiating for about a year. Now with the help of a conciliator, they're back at it. You know, we know who's represented by the Richard Nurses Union and the NLMA. The Allied Health Professionals is a really big group representing a lot of different disciplines inside the world of healthcare, just to give you a, a base understanding of who some of these people will be. Anesthesia assistants, respiratory therapists, audiologists, child care service consultants, sexologists, good one, dietitians, education consultants, genetic counselors, kinesiologists, medical flight specialists, mental health counselors, mental health program coordinators, occupational therapists, some pharmacists, some uh, physiotherapists, so, I mean this is a big long list psychologists also represented by allied health professionals so good to hear that they are back at the table because we cannot see another impasse and another chink in the provision of healthcare services here in the province so that's a good one also someone said boy yesterday said it was the biggest story and didn't even mention it today okay here we go and this is the report about from the program for international student assessment Talk about academic progress of 15-year-old students in countries right across the world, and not only about impacts of learning loss during the pandemic, but the trends we've been seeing since 2003. And yes, I stand by. This is a big story. Overall math scores in Canada declined 15 points between 2018 and 2022, which defines a drop of 20 points as losing out on a full year of learning. So we dropped 15 points, and if it was 20, that would constitute losing an entire year of learning. So obviously, that is absolutely absolutely staggering. When we talk about reading scores, students drop 13 points, science by three. And of course, in the world of reading, we can do much more outside the classroom versus the direct instruction that we need for things like mathematics and science. When we stick specifically 
with mathematics. Only 12% of Canadian students were high math achievers, scoring at level 5 or 6. Compare that to some of the top Asian countries. Singapore, 41% of students performed at a top level. Hong Kong, 27%. Japan and Korea at 23%, specifically in this province. The largest drop in math scores since 2018 in Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador. A drop of a whopping big 29 points. I mean, this is hugely problematic. I think we have an opportunity coming up tomorrow with the registered, uh, pardon me, with the teachers union, the NLTA, to talk about how they read this report, what needs to be done about this report. Also, I suppose critically important to put this in front of uh, the minister responsible, Crystalline Howell. And what's Terry's last name? The guy who's the head of the uh, school board. Uh, just jump for it out of my head. Anyway, so 29 points leading the league in the, all the worst categories that, with the drop in the math score. So, yes, I do think it's pretty important that we figure this out and move forward with it. Because when you fall behind in things like mathematics, it's extremely difficult to, fall, to uh, catch up. They, are clear, uh, they say clearly in this report that we can't point all the finger of blame at the pandemic and the fits and starts and closures and hybrid systems and everything else that led to the confusion and the difficulty in delivering the curriculum, the difficulty in absorbing the curriculum. But if the trend is since 2003, obviously, given the trend lines and the most recent drop numbers, we haven't done enough to attend to it. Big announcement coming from the federal government today about the oil and gas emissions cap framework. That's going to be announced today. It probably won't be as aggressive as the government was talking about uh, not so long ago. So they're talking about doing it through a cap and trade system. There was just some basic news leaks to talk about what people are anticipating will happen. So cap and trade basically just allows companies to buy, trade, a bunch of uh, emission allowances or permits. Not so sure that really does a whole, whole lot about emissions in this country. Uh, there you go. The number permits we do not know probably decline over time to make the targets are harder to hit but more important to hit they're also talking about an enhanced carbon price for the oil and gas sector as a standalone price we'll see so once the government was on the losing end of a couple of court rulings of course notably the environmental impact assessments that they say the, the pardon me the supreme court said that the feds were stepping on provincial authority or jurisdictional toes and consequently it was a federal overreach I said they lost that ruling. The next one they followed up with another loss was the whole issue that they labeled all plastic manufactured items as toxic. The court said clearly that the category plastic manufactured items was too broad for a single designation as toxic. In addition to that, it was another example of where the federal government was getting involved in provincial matters. Waste management is a provincial jurisdiction in this country. So in those two cases, with those two court rulings, now it looks like there's going to be a bit more of a soft cap-and-trade system or emissions framework that's going to be announced today, but that's going to be an important one to follow. And when we talk about the uh, cap on emissions for the oil and gas sector, if you look at what's going on now at COP28, of course, it's a climate change conference taking place in Dubai, which is an interesting location. You know, they don't go to places where these countries are very much on side with climate-related policies and matters. You know, go to where the concerns will be, I suppose, is the thought process there. But the prime minister's not there, but Danielle Smith is there, the premier of Alberta, Scott Moe is there, Premier Fury was there last year, and what were they doing? They're promoting oil, uh, oil projects. 
and or gas projects. Pretty fascinating disconnect. And at this particular conference, which is huge, I don't know how many delegates are there, but it's a massive number. It also includes 2,456 registered fossil fuel lobbyists. So while there's be a lot of concern by many attendees about lowering emissions, there's tons of focus from the fossil fuel companies pushing the potential for projects where they live, whether it be Moe in Saskatchewan, Smith in Alberta. And remember, the premier from this province was there last year doing exactly that. When you hear some of the oil lobbyists and or oil, oil executives speaking from Dubai, they really lean in hard on a couple of items. Number one being the carbon offsets. It doesn't necessarily reduce any carbon emissions. It's just an, an ability for a company to buy an offset from whether it be uh, a bog and someone who's operating this credit system. Then they talk a lot about carbon storage. Now, it's the conversations happening in this province. There was some $6 million put forward for the examination of injecting carbon directly into depleted oil wells uh, on our offshore. It's something that the technology is understood and is absolutely already happening. We're looking at whether or not it can work here. The premiers refer to it as a big economic opportunity in addition to simply capturing carbon from the production site, injecting it back into the, to the depleted well. Compare that to what they're doing in British Columbia. They're taking the carbon there and they're injecting it into the basalt rock formations on the seafloor because apparently the science says after the course of some 25 years, that carbon injected into the basalt rock formation will actually turn into rock. So they, the oil crowd over in Dubai are really, really pressing hard on the concept of carbon storage. Now, can it be an effective tool? Sure. I mean, we've spoken with some of the professors at Memorial University about the science behind it. But of course, it's pretty clear also that for the industry to be so hyper-focused on it today, people will refer to it as greenwashing. It gives them their own license and social license and government approvals to continue with producing because they'll say, well, the emissions aren't as bad now because we've figured out how to capture them and how and where to store them. Salt mines and saline aquifers and depleted oil wells and basalt rock formations, but they are talking about it a lot. And imagine, at a climate conference, 2,456 registered registered fossil fuel company lobbyists pretty interesting territory for pushing the conversation along okay let's check the twitter we're vocm open line you know what to do our email address is openline at vocm.com when we come back another hour left in the program to speak with you don't go away join craig smith weeknights at 5 45 as he chats with local musicians about life inspiration shows and new music tune into soundcheck your backstage pass to the local music scene on your vocm Welcome back to the program. An interesting call from Ottawa, a fellow named Andrew Konechny, talking about a petition he's put forward about the uh, Health Canada approvals and misuse, I guess that's the right word, of certain drugs. In this case, we're talking about Ozempic. You know, to treat diabetes and it's being prescribed for weight loss. It's not, it hasn't been approved for weight loss in this country, but yet there's something like 3 million prescriptions for Ozempic, for, uh, specifically for weight loss. No, that's not true. 3 million prescriptions for Ozempic have been filled in this country this year. There's certainly a big number of those simply using it for weight loss. It's similar to a conversation we had with Dr. Peter Daly on this show not that long ago talking about the growing concern about superbugs and it's the misuse of antibiotics. So it used to be one of the messages was when you got a prescription for antibiotics make sure you take the entire course because if you don't and your symptoms have waned maybe you build up a, a tolerance to the that particular antibiotic and you need something stronger next time around. What we're also seeing is and this is the concern where it comes back to the prescription pad. If the doctors are prescribing for weight loss, there's a concern there. 
I think. And the same thing when it comes to antibiotics. There is a very specific use for an antibiotic. It's to treat bacterial infections, period. Not to treat common colds or other ailments that are not bacterial infections. Not, no viral infection is going to see any benefit from the prescription or prescribing of a, an antibiotic. So the question would be, how and why would medically trained professionals be prescribing an antibiotic for something that they know has no, there's no business writing a prescription for it. So it's straight up. Bacterial infection is the only home for an antibiotic, period. So, the, you know, I don't understand how someone would be writing a prescription knowing full well what they're prescribing is not going to do anything for the patient. And as a result, it uh, has the, the linked growing concern about the superbugs. When we talk about antibiotic resistance, then, of course, that's going to be an issue that we're all going to face at the exact same time. So for folks who have the medical training, please just go ahead and write the prescriptions for things that they're used for. So bacterial infections only when we talk about antibiotics, right? Right. Let's go to line one. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. Morning. Patty, you got a tasty little morsel of a show on the go there this morning. No doubt about it. Lots on the plate to pick from. To that Patty, there is. Yeah, I, I called in about uh, about some comments that have been made about Dubai. Dubai's in Dubai. Yep. That's where they are. I guess we can put it that way. Hey, Dubai's in Dubai. Uh, Petty, I'm I, uh, particularly interested, and you pointed out those that were there and those that weren't there, in that the Premier is not there. It's a massive, uh, you know, it's a world-class type of thing. It's the UN doing its thing. And, uh, and a, a lot of what these committees come up with, uh, they all they all have subcommittees, and Canada's a part of a number of these committees, are part of course. And uh, what's going on there is we don't have the. But we I sent a little. You may not have even seen it. A little Twitter feed there this morning about uh, a reference to uh, our minister responsible for the air, Bernard Davis, uh, climate, uh, is over there, and a, a somewhat uh, wonderful picture that was uh, came out on X Twitter. Uh, Mr. Uh, Davis uh, taking a wonderful snapshot with the the equally wonderful and charming Mr. Rick Smith. Now, you are a bit young, probably. You may not even remember that name. He's the former executive director of the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Now, that's the wonderful group of people who led the anti-seal hunt protest movement to ban products into Europe and other markets throughout the world. Very successfully did it, Patty. And uh, and they did that by portraying Newfoundlanders as butchers and barbarians. All kinds of misstatements, all kinds of misrepresentations were done. It was a hateful mess. So much so that people traveling on business wouldn't even say they were from Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, in those days, it wasn't Labrador, just Newfoundland. They were too embarrassed because of what this group and a couple of others had done. So here's Mr. Davis representing our interest at a climate change thing and a big old snuggle, not only in Dubai, COP28, but I think it was COP17 in Egypt a number of months ago. We wrote him on that and said, hey, Bernie, you better be careful there because you're going to be used as a, a little promo saying, here's look at this wonderful relationship we got with Newfoundland and Labrador uh, to do some fundraising. Sure enough, it's on their website today. 
the, R- Rick Smith is a fascinating character. So not only was the head of the IFAW and all of the absolute propaganda regarding the seal hunt, but they also did some good things. Like I'm pretty sure he's behind the creation of the Species at Risk, Risk Act, which is really helpful legislation. Then he went on, if, I, if memory serves... Wait, no, wait, no, no, sorry, before you leave that, how, how are seals, which are in that, by the way, species of risk... How are they at risk, and what kind of good is that doing to Newfoundland and Labrador that he that you're so rightfully stated he was a directing mind in creating it? Yeah, I, I mean, that helps. I, I didn't say that the inclusion of seals made any sense at all, but that Species at Risk Act is overall generally beneficial piece of legislation, and of course, the inclusion of seals makes zero sense period. You know, they had a lot of focus on harbor seals and that kind of stuff. But anyway, Smith also went on, again, I think this is how I remember properly. He was the chief of staff for Jack Layton at one point. He got it. And he got tossed out of the office. He got tossed. I remember. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, there you go. Okay. So the other things is, I, I, look, he's, he's probably, this guy's a nice guy. I've met him face to face. I've talked to him numerous times. I was the director with the province when uh, Crosby unleashed the federal response to the Seals uh, uh, and Sealing Royal Commission by Maloof. So I came across uh, uh, more on the International Fund for Welfare and its hate uh, campaigns, more so than Rick Smith, but he was the chief cook and bottle washer in that group. So let's go back to where we are today. Now he's rebranded, and rightfully so. He's a very conscientious person, I'm sure, uh, as a Canadian Climate Institute or something or other. And who have he got dragging on his arm nowadays, not once, but twice, all over Twitter, even after saying, Bernie, be careful, Bernie. I'll tell you, you're going to get used. And sure, it's out. Who's there? The Honorable Bernard Davis. Even though I personally spoke to Bernard when I came across him down at the Alto Hotel a little while ago at a news conference where they had they announced the um, the inclusion of uh, Uber and Lyft and that, Bernie was there. And I, I said, Bernard, be careful with Davis. Be careful. Or Smith, be careful. And uh, uh, he walked on, grunted and walked on. And uh, you know what? I mean, you gotta wonder. You know what's going on in government with Premier Fury and and Davis? What are, are they thinking at all that these guys are not our friends? That they're going to do whatever is the best interest of others? You know that? Who's there from Newfoundland, Patty, at uh, at COP twenty eight? Can you tell me? I asked. They wouldn't give you a list. I don't know. Don't even tell you. They won't tell you. These, these guys are all up there having a few glasses of schnapps. They're all doing quite well. They're all hobnobbing around up there, and they all went over big jets. Uh, so much for the climate. And yet we get this kind of malarkey that comes out. I know there's one group that's out there. I think it's called OFI or something like that, based at the uh, Dalhousie University with its tentacles here into Newfoundland. Uh, they're on uh, the fisheries. They're, they're about saving conservation. They're cubicle scientists, I call them, cubicle researchers. Anyway, I, when I heard your, your comment about who was over there this morning, I did a number of posting this morning on my own, Mike Keel, I'm there at once, take a shot, take a shot out of the camp on Twitter or under Coastal People where I have access to that site as well. And it's the same thing. No one is representing our interests in a meaningful way. We just had the people coming over to us, Patty, from where? Europe. There, you did some wonderful interviews, Jim Winter in particular. I heard your interview with him was great and others. 
they were over from Europe, and somebody said, some great news person said, really person said, no, about these seals, that you won't let us ship some seal meat or oil or anything into Europe. And uh, Van der Leyen, what was her name? They had the delegation, I can't recall. Uh, Ursula Van der Leyen? Yeah, she said, yeah, we, we got a compromise there with the Aboriginal groups. You got to get their rubber stamp of approval, and we're, we're allowing them to put some in. I don't know what's wrong with settlers, but anyway, we're not allowed to go in. You know how many pelts they put in there, Patty, last year? Very few. The last three. Four. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the concern there is also larger than just that, you know, the optic of saying, well, we recognize the importance for culture, tradition, and what have you for indigenous folks. But there's only two indigenous groups in the entire country that have the label of approval or the stamp of approval from the EU, and neither of those are in this province. So their answer to regarding seals here is meaningless. And they can't get them in. Those two groups, even though they got this, oh, yeah, here's your buy to get in, you know, pass gold, go right ahead. They got four pelts in, four. And, and yet, you, yet some politician here, the premier in particular, because he's our delegate here, he's supposed to be looking after the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, not Seamus or Thompson or somebody like The premier's looking after our interests, should be standing up to these people who desperately need this hydrogen, this green energy, and say, no, but while we're at it, by the way, let's talk about that four-letter word seal, shall we? You know, and here we got we got more more going on now over in Dubai. It was in Egypt. The cops are on the go. They, they, these parties, and not one person. When I went looking with the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, I said, "Who's representing the fishing industries and all of them?" Because that's where they put climate change. By the way, conservation ecosystem is now under climate change uh, for the for the ocean. I said, "Who's looking after our interests?" Oh, that's somebody. The fisheries department said, "Oh, that's somebody over in climate change." So and conservation. I went to climate change and conservation. And they said, "No, oh, no, no, no. That's somebody over in fisheries." <laughs> You know, come on, Premier Blade, you want to, you got to do better than that. Yeah, really have. Yeah, and when the EU, Canada-EU summit took place, I mean, there was two specific categories that we absolutely could have had a larger conversation regarding SEAL, and that's, of course, trade and biodiversity. It, it fits into both just very nicely and neatly. And yes, when we talk about uh, whether it be natural gas exports, green hydrogen exports, wheat exports, whatever the case may be, there is an opportunity. It's just the political will is not there to take it on, to include or to ensure that seals are welcome back into the EU because the decision that they made on it was based on fallacies. And, you know, whether or not it's their willingness to accept the error or recognize that they were uh, duped or misled, I guess that's part of the egg on the face that they're trying to avoid at the same time. Uh, Last comment about COP28 before we get to the break. So back in COP26, there was pretty much consensus about... Uh, phasing down unabated use of coal. I mean, it just makes all the sense in the world. Now the big racket is if there's going to be any language surrounding phasing out fossil fuels, which I doubt is going to happen. And in reality, even people who are vehemently concerned with this particular issue, there are tons of industrial applications where we just don't have an alternative to using fossil fuels at this moment in time. As much as many activists don't want to hear it, it's actually the facts of the matter. So how this, and that's why they're doing things like cap and trade system when we talk about emissions in the oil and gas sector in this country because there's still an ongoing need. Now, will there be a peak hit in the near, in the near future? 
that's a moving target as well. You can hear some people say 2035, some people say 2050 to forecast the peak. But whenever it is, the transition fuels are growing in popularity. And don't expect any uh, concrete phase-out language coming from COP28 when it comes to fossil fuels. You know, we can talk about coal because there's every option in the world be getting away from coal, but not yeah. so much when we talk about fossil fuels yeah. in the short term. India's gone back to coal, Patty. Oh, yeah. India's going back. Others are going back. I, 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 you know what? You're right. I, you're getting there time. But if there's someone to pay a price in this, it will be Canada. And if in Canada there's somebody to pay a price, it'll be Newfoundland and Labrador. Because we're so uh, we're made ready for throwing underneath the bus. Because our politicians will not speak up, like we pointed out a few moments ago, in the ceiling issue and now in the hydrogen issue. They just won't open their mouth. And and I don't even know why we got him in there. By God, Mr. Davis, you should resign. You really, really should resign. It's time for Mr. Bernard Davis to resign because he does not know what he's doing or he doesn't care what he's doing and neither of that is it should be acceptable to newfoundland and labrador minister neither thanks for the time mike thank you very much patty have a great day you too bye-bye You know, just quick on the green hydrogen, because there are ways to include. Now, the complicating factor there is that it would be an arrangement between, say, for instance, the Germans and a private sector company. So I don't know if you can, you know, try to wedge in another issue for the provincial benefit necessarily. But with the hydrogen question... So it's not only a price point concern that people will be talking about for the long-term viability. And, you know, we'll try to have John Risley on again to try to broach some of these concerns because there have been some green hydrogen projects in Europe already shelved. There's also, you know, a question that someone asked me via email earlier today is, is there not wind and water and the expertise and the technology to do it in, in Europe itself? And of course the answer is yes, there are, of course would be opportunities. Maybe not in places like Germany, you know, whether or not they have access to the amount of water required and the deep sea ports and all the rest of it, but there's probably going to be, if this looks like it's going to be a popular transition fuel, as people refer to it as, then will there be the likelihood of someone and a proponent much closer to the end user, we'll talk, say just for instance in the European Union, even though we are extremely close, obviously, we all know the geography and the relationship between Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, Europe, but what does that mean? If it grows in popularity and the customers are there, then you know, what kind of contracts will people be willing to get locked into, knowing that the technology is going to develop, there's going to be uh, maybe some different proponents closer to eventual end-use markets, will there be a customer here in our own country for the green hydrogen, will there be customers on the northeastern United States, which is where everybody would love to be able to sell their energy, or sell anything, you know, given the population base and population density, but pretty big questions. And so if you want to dig in on that one, I know there's folks that used to be called the Southwest Coast Alliance, now have rebranded as Protect NL. They continue to ask a bunch of questions on that front. Also, maybe I'll wait till after the break. There's a, as one person who seems, based on the emails that they've written, mean the links that they've attached to the emails, is talking about some issues regarding animal-related matters and interaction with the wind turbines. And they're saying that the, uh, the methodology used to refer to simply bats alone is deeply flawed. I've read as much as I could as I'm trying to do the show during commercial breaks, just have an eyeball and a cursory glance at some of this material. But it's interesting how he has pointed out the differences between the size of the turbines 
versus about the size of the turbines we're talking about now because they're using data that does not reflect the fact that these turbines are going to install on some 40% of the Port of Port Peninsula are, get this, they're taller than the Confederation building. Taller than the Confederation building. They're absolutely massive. So if you've seen a wind turbine up the southern shore or a wind turbine in Ramia, that doesn't mean you've seen the wind turbines that we're going to be talking about installing here. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to check out VOCM.com today, but there's a pretty interesting story there regarding housing and potential solutions for what we're facing, you know, at the, the, what people call Tent City. So it's a contracting company in Ontario. They got two of these so-called modular home communities, one in Waterloo, one in Peterborough. There's pretty good pictures to give you a good description of what they're actually talking about. So what it looks like is these are repurposed shipping containers which become private cabins. Now, they're inside, there's no washroom facility, but what they have is they've got them all these little shipping containers in a square surrounding what would be washroom facility and laundry facilities. They talk about the fact that to build one of these communities costs about $2.5 million. Inside the cabin, each cabin, I mean, and it's not lavish to say the very least, but it's in out of the elements anyway. So they have heat, air conditioning, there's a bed, a mini fridge, a desk, and a shelf. So they're not going to have, pose any fire risk, of course, because they're made out of metal. They can be moved around pretty easily. The question would be, if this is a short-term solution considered, where would you put it? And of course, it is certainly the furthest thing from ideal, but when they speak to people who are residents in these two communities in Waterloo and in Peterborough, folks are saying things like, it's been life-changing. You know, versus getting into an emergency shelter, which can be dangerous and violent and drug use and sexual solicitation and all the rest. I don't know if it's the answer, but I don't even know if we're actually considering doing exactly that. Also, there's been people generous enough to put forward their time and effort if there's going to be uh, some sort of project to build some sort of warmer shelter. Here we are now in the throes of winter. I can see across on the roofs on Camount Terrace, of course, covered in snow. So it's an interesting story. If you haven't seen it, and it's got the pictures to give you a good idea of what these repurposed shipping containers look like. You know, people say, well, it's windowless and it's institutionalizing people. And I, th- I just think in the path towards either changing the way uh, the country and the province thinks about housing as opposed to equity and uh, contribution to the GDP and housing starts as an economic measure versus a place to actually live, whether it's going to be some sort of thought given to how we have a so-called staircase system in place where you become homeless, then we find you a, a spot in an emergency shelter, and then we find you a short-term solution inside, say, for instance, the world of housing, and then we find hopefully a permanent solution. Very much unlike what they do in other parts of the world where there's no such thing as these types of shelters. What they do is they put there's a permanent housing solution found right away. Now, we're having a hard enough time even building enough homes to keep up with the demand in this province. And again, on the national front, if we're going to have to build some 3.5 million additional units by the end of the decade, it's not going to happen. So it doesn't make you a bad person to say that we really do need to pump the brakes a little bit on the numbers of newcomers welcomed into the country. Not to say that we're unwelcoming to newcomers, because you know my stance on immigration. I think there's a lot of upside associated with it. But if we can't house people properly and we can't give them proper access to health care, then it's not... It's not an untoward question to ask, are we just on the wrong track here? So the federal government is determined to keep the number around 500,000 per year. How does that jibe with the number of homes we're unable to build versus the number we're told by the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation that we're going to need? 
the question is we're we're creating an impossibly an impossible issue to manage again in this province so housing starts in newfoundland and labrador this year are going to be somewhere around 900 when you compare that to the number we're told we're going to need to build, which is 10,000 per year over the next six years, meaning 60,000, we're never going to hit nowhere close to that. Even if there's GST taken off affordable rental units, even if there's more monies out there for the provincial government and ver- a variety of incentives to build more homes, more money that's been earmarked for exactly that. It's all fine and dandy, but p- p- between the permitting issue and the lack of skilled tradespeople, you know, just dovetail that with some of these big so-called mega projects that may be approved in the near future. We're not going to be able to hit the housing targets, period. So what are some of those solutions? Could it be some of these things like tiny homes and modular homes, double-wide trailers and whatever else? I suppose they're going to have to factor in somehow. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the CEO of the St. John's International Airport Authority. That's Dennis Hogan. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Oh, hey, Patty. Uh, great to be with you. Happy to have you on the program. We've all heard the headlines about what happened at the airport this morning, but walk us through exactly what took place. Sure. So uh, at about 5.15 a.m. this morning, uh, our security at St. John's International Airport Authority did um, discover an unattended package, and it was found near a Christmas tree in the um, check-in area of the terminal. So <clears throat> Excuse me. You have to excuse me, too. I'm uh, just getting over a cold, so hopefully my voice will hold up. But um, so our security, along with uh, CATSA, uh, the passenger screening uh, organization, they swabbed the package. And it turned out that the swab came back um, positive for a known chemical that's uh, often used in uh, explosives. Now, I should uh, uh, note, though, that this substance is also used in a variety of other products, whether it's uh, cosmetic makeup, uh, some fabrics, or or other types of varnishes. Uh, So uh, given uh, the suspicious nature of the package and the swab result, we uh, enacted our emergency response plan, and uh, that was just a couple of minutes after that uh, the package was discovered. We uh, contacted the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary for assistance. Uh, they arrived shortly thereafter, uh, were briefed on the situation, and they uh, then assumed uh, site command. <clears throat> Excuse me. They requested that the area around the package would be evacuated, and we then closed the terminal to any arriving traffic. Uh, following that, the RNC um, deployed their bomb squad, squad uh, unit to the airport, and uh, after they arrived, they uh, cleared the suspicious package, and it turns out that the individual who placed the package um, was located in the uh, departure area of the terminal, and the situation was then deemed not to be a threat to airport operations, and we were back uh, resuming operations a little after 7 a.m. Can you describe the package? So what are we talking about here, a wrapped box or something? Uh, it was just a box that had some uh, some objects in it. Uh, I don't know the exact nature of, of the contents, but it was not deemed to be anything that was uh, related to a, uh, a threat. There's repeated warnings in many airports about, you know, do not leave your baggage unattended. So the p- fellow who did indeed leave it there, what did he have to say for himself? Uh, 
Well, actually, uh, it was just a, an innocent misunderstanding. Uh, this individual really was not uh, uh, at, at fault in any way. It's just the nature of, of the uh, box that was left along with uh, the swab that was taken. We, we really had no choice then but implement our emergency procedures. Um, there were some issues related to, uh, to language uh, and uh, maybe communications, but other than that, uh, the, the individual uh, uh, in question uh, had, uh, had no fault in this case. Fair enough. Uh, I do want to move on. I'm glad that there's obviously no threat to public safety and it was not a bomb, yeah. so these are all pieces of good news and the protocols are there for Very a reason. So, yeah. so are all operations back on time now? Uh, yes, they are. There were some delays to flights uh, due to the incident, and we had a, a little bit of a backlog related to de-icing as well. But our partners at Inland, who um, who do the uh, de-icing services, uh, they quickly opened up a second bay for uh, de-icing purposes, and that was um, in order to allow uh, the planes to be done much more quickly, and that helped alleviate the backlog. And I do have to uh, sincerely offer my thanks to uh, our security security team, uh, CATSA and the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, who really did a, an awesome job responding and our emergency response plan uh, worked as it's intended. And we do apologize for the, the inconvenience that passengers would have experienced this morning due to the incident. So the outbound traveling public, of course, were turned away. Were flights allowed to land while the protocols were enacted? No, there were there were no flights allowed to land at that per, uh, at that point in time, and uh, we had contacted all the airlines to ensure they were aware of uh, the nature of the incident. And uh, once we were given the all clear by the RNC, uh, we resumed operations in full at uh, a little after 7 a.m. What does uh, traffic look like? Uh, volume traffic at the airport? People are talking about you know pre-pandemic levels. Where are we at sure. St. John's? So I, we think we're going to end the year at about 80 maybe 88 percent of, of passenger traffic levels that we would have experienced in 2019 so the the rebound or the growth uh, coming out of the pandemic is certainly there it's it's strong we have a forecast as well that would uh, probably put us at about 95 plus percent for uh, 2024 so it's encouraging I think the the numbers or the statistics are all going in the right direction I, I will give one caveat to that in that um, while the passenger number are starting to come up to equal what they would have been uh, prior to the pandemic. Um, the the difference now is that the airlines, uh, for the most part, are using uh, larger aircraft and maybe fewer frequencies. So we're getting the passenger numbers back, but perhaps not all the um, the volume of actual flights. And that's something we're working on as well. Let's talk WestJet. You know, in many corners, yeah, sure. they welcome the thrice-weekly uh, direct flight to London's Gatwick. Talk us through how this conversation starts. Well, I'd like, to, I'd like to understand the process about how you get a carrier to reinstate a route. Sure. So airports throughout, well, not only Canada, but throughout the world, particularly coming out of, of COVID, uh, many of them needed to rebuild routes and either reestablish routes that may have existed in the past or, or adopt new uh, nonstop service routes. We're no different. And at St. John's International, we've taken a very proactive approach. We regularly meet with all of our airline partners and other airlines that that aren't currently serving um, St. John's in an effort to, you know, promote um, um, 
um, the the opportunities that exist in the province and uh, put forward a business case that uh, would make it appealing for an airline to establish or reestablish a route that may have existed in the past. So in the case of WestJet, we've had uh, very regular communications with, uh, with WestJet and uh, they uh, were evaluating their plans for 2024 and over the course of several meetings and a lot of discussions, uh, they uh, did agree that they would like to reinstate a route that we had that did uh, last run in 2017, I believe. And uh, now for 2024, starting this May, we will have a seasonal operation from here at YYT to London Gatwick, and it will run uh, three times per week, and that'll carry into the latter part of October. What makes it appealing? Like, what are we talking about? Reduced landing fees, or how do you put forward an unappealing package? Well, I, I think, Jenny, in my experience, uh, virtually all of the airlines, they want to um, have a solid economic or business case for establishing a route. And they, they're not in this to kind of rely on um, incentives or, you know, the word subsidy is used uh, often. Um, they want to have a solid uh, business case for, uh, for bringing their business to a certain airport and making certain connections to other locations. So what we do, um, and and this is very much in general terms, we have the ability uh, within the airport to, uh, say, lower or waive certain fees that airlines do pay because we operate under a user pay model. Um, All the um, airports in Canada that are part of the national airport system, including St. John's, uh, do work in this model that's user pay. So there's no government funding, either provincially or federally, that help us operate an airport. It's it's the airlines pay, uh, passengers pay, um, um, an airport improvement fee, as I'm sure you're aware. And that's how the system operates in, in, in Canada. So in order to um, alleviate some of the the cost barriers that may be there, particularly when you start a, a route uh, or a new route. Uh, we work with the airlines, and we can offer certain incentives. Again, maybe waiving some of those landing fees or terminal fees that they pay. Generally, in the first year of of a contract, could be the first six months of a contract, and that would would uh, be on a sliding scale over over say up to three years. That's generally um, what most airports. Are, are engaged in. So there is no subsidy from the provincial government because we talk about the $3.7 million to be distributed amongst the airport authorities. Is that not yeah. used for things like this? Well, well, that, that funding is, is utilized for a whole range of air service development activities uh, that, uh, that all of the airports um, that are, are uh, uh, in, the, in the province uh, can apply for and, uh, and avail of. What the WestJet um, um, opportunity uh, involves um, is more related to ensuring that we reach certain or, or the airline can reach certain revenue targets. So it's not a subsidy as such. There are some uh, incentives there that allow, um, say, a certain revenue guarantee that may um, never even be enacted. If if the flight is um, has a high load factor, for instance, if you know 80 or 85 percent of uh, the seats are full uh, for most of the flights, then any kind of an incentive in that regard uh, from the province uh, or a government funding uh, would would not be uh, enacted or, or um, needed for uh, for the. Can you share what that target is, percentage of seats sold? 
well, it, it varies. I can't get into the specifics of the arrangement that we have uh, with uh, WestJet. Of course, that's that's a commercial contract that has certain uh, confidentiality um, covenants around it. But this this idea of revenue guarantees is is common uh, throughout several provinces in Canada, and and uh, airlines um, will sometimes look at that to help defer some of the startup costs, if you will, of getting an airline to service a particular route. And in in this particular case, we we welcome WestJet and the uh, faith that they have in in St. John's and particularly the route to to London Gatwick. Uh, you know, we have a long history here, uh, really since the start of the airport in in the 1940s, which was started by the U.S. military during uh, World War II. We have always had a form of nonstop service to Europe, uh, primarily to London, and with some uh, you know interruptions over over the years um, that's that's been the case um, prior to covid of course we lost some of that capacity that we used to have so it has been a good four or five years since we've had that non-stop service so we are uh, delighted that we were able to come to an agreement and now uh, WestJet is going to be serving that route uh, starting in May can you give us an idea of some other routes that are being looked at or airlines that are in, in consideration because people talk about the next most coveted route would possibly be a direct flight to Newark New Jersey for instance because oh, yes. that massive airport sure. there so who are we talking with yeah so we we been uh, meeting uh, with uh, a tremendous amount of airlines. We we are relentless in our pursuit of air service development, knowing that our communities, uh, the population, the traveling population in the province, the business community, leisure travelers, all want to have uh, expanded access. And that's on multiple levels, whether it's interprovincial, uh, on a regional basis in Atlantic Canada, uh, domestically, and, and as you mentioned, transborder into the United States. So uh, we did have a route that existed uh, previously to uh, Newark um, in the U.S., and that last ran, um, I believe, in 2015. So we have been working with uh, airlines in the U.S. and in Canada to, um, you know, promote the potential of uh, that that particular route, among others. And uh, you're right about Newark. It does offer uh, tremendous uh, connectivity, and, and that's uh, one of the great uh, appealing factors of, uh, of Newark. Yeah, I mean, that, I don't know if there's such a thing as the most the next most coveted route. I know Europe connection is obviously very important. Minister Crocker, when they were talking about MOUs with the green hydrogen, says there was conversation with Condor Air in Germany, yeah. one of their national carriers. Uh, Anything else you'd like to add to it this morning while we have you, Dennis? Uh, well, just to, to uh, indicate that uh, we have a lot of strong support from our community partners, including uh, the provincial government, uh, City of St. John's, other municipalities in the region, Hospitality, Newfoundland and Labrador, um, the St. John's Board of Trade, Energy NL, and many others, uh, Destination St. John's. Um, and we're, we're all on the same page in, in terms of promoting St. John's as uh, a destination, not only for tourism, but for a multitude of industries and, of course, to serve uh, the traveling public in Newfoundland and Labrador. And we're all working together to ensure we bring as much uh, nonstop service and connectivity to St. John's and to the province as we can. I appreciate your time, Dennis. Thanks for this. Great. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Dennis Hogan, CEO of St. John's International Airport Authority. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to geek out, talk municipal zoning. All right. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, it was not that long ago, 
Jess Puddister was trying to build a tiny home, I believe it was in the community of Pooch Cove. Through the jigs and the reels, she wasn't unable to do so. Now the conversation's come full circle where the country's actually talking about tiny homes, modular homes, and the like. Join us on line number one is Jess Puddister. Hi, Jess. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Long time no talk. How you doing? I'm doing great. So welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing really well, thank you. What are you doing these days? I am working in renewable energy these days um, up in Nunavut. So I'm staying in my wheelhouse of climate change action, and it's going really well. It's really exciting work. Terrific. Uh, we did want to pick your mind though, a little bit about the whole housing issue across the country. It's remarkable to me that we didn't have municipalities recognize the place that tiny homes could have in this country. Talk about all the needs, that, how many homes we have to build or how many units we have to build. It's really remarkable that the conversations come full circle. Now, all of a sudden, tiny homes even have some zoning in the city of St. John's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In uh, in the most recent iteration of St. John's development regulations, they do include tiny homes as an allowable use in the residential downtown zone and the R3, so high-density residential zone here in the city. Um, I will say, though, that that does require your own lot. So you have to have your own building lot to put the tiny home on. Um, so it's not yet a scenario where you can have like a backyard tiny home like you can in other places in Canada. Um, even as close as Halifax, for example, they allow what's called accessory dwellings. Um, and I think that's a really progressive direction to be moving in um, because the footprint of land that a tiny home needs is so much smaller than a regular home. And as long as you're respecting those side yard and rear yard requirements for um, fire safety, then you're golden, honestly. Um, so I know like there's there's lots of people in the city in the metro area across the province who who've got you know a nice big backyard and maybe they have someone in their life, um, someone in their family who's struggling with housing or would benefit from living very nearby. Um, and it could be a really cool option to be able to build a tiny home like right on the property that they already own. So I think that's one thing that we could see. Um, like that's the that we could build on the progress that's already happened in St. John's in that direction. Wasn't part of the most recent announcement here about population density the uh, maybe the allowance to do exactly that, or am I misremembering? Um, you'll have, have to forgive to me because I might have missed that one myself um, in terms of population density. But I know that we, our our density is probably fairly low outside of like the St. John's core. Um, but I mean. I don't think it really matters, to be honest with you. I think that like people deserve to have choice and option when it comes to housing. And I think that the more that we can encourage all kinds of different people from different backgrounds, from different socioeconomic classes, all living together in the same area with a variety of different housing types, anywhere from a tiny home up to like um, a multiplex or a quadplex to like small scale, medium scale apartment buildings. Um, and then with like the single family home at the other end of the spectrum, um, the more we can encourage that mix, I think the better we'll be able to meet people's needs across the board. Because for a long time, Patty, like people have been, well, I say people, I mean really developers, um, have been kind of touting this narrative that the single family home detached dwelling is kind of the end all be all. And it's like what everybody wants, it's the gold standard of housing. And in reality, like, I don't really think that that's true. Um, and I think that, you know, when, if you, 
if you want to go buy a home and there's only one kind of home on the market available to buy, then it's going to look like there's a lot of demand for that particular kind of home. But that's almost like a manufactured kind of demand because there's no other options on the menu. Um, When I was working on the tiny house project back in 2017, 2018, um, I had so many people reach out to me on Facebook um, and by email from all over the province a lot of senior citizens um, saying that they were really excited about what I was doing and that they were following along and that they would love to be able to have the opportunity of living in a smaller home near some other family members um, rather than keeping on maintaining their big empty nest single family detached dwelling because for a lot of people like the responsibility of maintaining a home like that is just too much. 100%. And I think a tiny home with a formal designation could be as upwards of 600 square feet. So how many people living in 2,200 square feet only actually live in about 500 square feet? You know, I haven't been down to the basement other than to go to the freezer in quite a long time, for instance. So just before we run out of time, I'm going to sneak on another call. But it's great to have you back on the show. I'd like to talk about what you're actually doing for a living up in Nunavut these days, one day soon, if you have the time. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a call back, Patty. We'll have a chat on that. Thanks, Jess. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, last word goes to line number three. Reg, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. How are you, my son? Great, just, sir. I didn't, want, I didn't want to call. I just left St. John's, Patty, on my way to Air Bay. And I tell you, buddy, uh, I don't know if you've got any update, but from uh, uh, St. John's out to Witness Bay, you you can't the passing lane, Patty. Is, is there's three or four or four or five centimeters of snow, and, like, the traffic is backed up uh, three or four kilometers. You can't pass. So if you're driving out of the roads are pretty good, you know what I mean, eh? But it's impossible, and there's no plows. I mean, my God, what's going on? They get no plows here in St. John's or what? Well, it's a good question because I've got six <laughs> or seven emails with the exact same complaint, so I don't know uh, how many plows are on the road. But you're not alone in complaining about the, the conditions in that direction. Well, I tell you, the fatty, I got to the point, like, I was up behind that many vehicles, and there was cars coming up, like, trying to pass pickup truck, and they were scared, I guess, so I just literally, I said, I'm going to pull off. So I pulled off, but I didn't take my time, because it's, you know what I mean, eh? But it's, and I haven't seen a plow. I mean, it's totally ridiculous. They're talking about 24-7. I mean, my God, they can't eat 12 o'clock in the day, Patty, you know? So I don't know. Come on, for God's sake, transportation or whatever, and have a look at this, because... There's going to be a serious accident if you don't get a plow out there. But anyway, Patty, uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. My son, I'll call you at a later time and with some other thing. Anyway, Thanks, Reg. Patty. Thanks for this. Thanks, my buddy. Hey, buddy. Take care. You too. Right, bye-bye. bye-bye. All right, good show today. Big thanks to all hands, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.